John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Yeah, we got a Muslim. Relief must have put it down. Must have. Yeah, but you can't see him because you ain't his lawyer. No lawyer, no see. Well, until I'm satisfied that Brother Johnson is receiving proper medical care, nobody will move. <laughs> Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where we are continuing our season of Lee and continuing our exploration of one of Spike Lee's greatest films, Malcolm X. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, host, and voiceover artist here in San Diego, California. And once again, we are wake- welcoming back to our microphones one of our favorite guests and really a guest for a big hunk of this year is writer, director, actor, voiceover artist, founder of Four Horsemen, Andre Gordon. What's up, everybody? Just here flexing my muscles. Yeah. It was impressive. It was like full Schwarzenegger going on there. It was amazing. N.W.O. Hogan. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, shall we jump right back into the story? Yeah. Yeah. So now, after meeting the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X is fully involved in the Nation of Islam, and we can see immediately he becomes an important public figure. We see him organizing things, and then we see him speaking. And I would say one of the things Denzel does brilliantly, in addition to deliver these powerful speeches, is he also shows how he grows into the job. Take a real good look at where you live, not just where you live, but take a good look at where everybody you know lives. Right? Because I, I don't want you to think you just got a bad luck accident. Like in these first ones, he's, you know, small speeches, you know, on the street corner. And I love, by the way, as he's speaking, the camera does a 360 and goes by the other preachers. <laughs> and these are some interesting uh, guest stars. Mm-hmm. We got Bobby Seal, one of the founders of the Black Panthers, and then the Reverend Al Sharpton, both yeah. speaking. <laughs> I love, by the way, he's saying, as people come out of church. Oh, I'm so surprised. I'm so surprised. Y'all been in church two hours and you're expecting to see heaven out here and there ain't no heaven. And then he's talking to some women. And I guess it's a situation where the rich white ladies are coming down 
to the African-American women looking to hire, you know, maids and house cleaners and stuff like that. That's what it looks like to me. Well, you can wash their clothes for them. You can scrub their floors. You can rock their little breasts to sleep for the rest of your life. You'll still end up poor and without anything. And yet you're out here on the auction block. They're examining you like you're a, a chicken or a horse or a, or a slave. You see this here? This is who you are. Beautiful. And you could see that he kind of wins over one of the women and then we cut to her in the temple applauding as he's speaking. Great. This these are some great edits. <laughs> I was just thinking. That. Right? And and I mean just fantastic cuts here that take us through this journey very quickly. Cuz obviously he could spend a lot of time with Malcolm building up his status as a preacher on the street and and pushing the the message of the of Elijah Muhammad, the honorable Elijah Muhammad and and black Muslim faith, but in these this quick section first of all that going through the preachers as a kind of a circle as as Mm -hmm. it was brilliant no cut it seems like and end up there and then like you said go right to the church you know launching his assault on catholicism still or or organized religion in that way in christianity or whatever which is very big in the black community by the way and so um seeing that he's trying to get them and then he just he breaks through to one person yep. and that's all you need to know to understand how good malcolm is he gets through one to one person and that person is there in the meeting it just kind of st- symbolizes all the people malcolm was able to get through to as a preacher there to get people to come and i don't want to brush past one moment too steve as you mentioned the fact that he gets through this to this one black woman mm. they are essentially the way it's laid out, white women coming down to find their maids. These women are essentially back on slave blocks. He and said, totally. They, yeah, right. Exactly. And that's and that's why that scene is so important that he was able to take one of those women off that line to have them come and embrace what they can be. And I want to add another thing to this. Um, something I've gotten to understand through my friend Nikki Fowler is the and and become aware of more so as I listen to black women more and more in, in the world is. This idea of female black entrepreneurship is such a powerful thing nowadays and hearing more and more black women go out on their own to create their own companies, to become their entrepreneurs, in a way, Malcolm bringing her out of this idea of having to be a white woman's maid, embracing her own power, her own path, in a way might lead to her becoming a black woman entrepreneur and this idea of self-actualization. And so I think it's such a powerfully a deep moment, even though it's a quick moment, it's a powerfully deep moment for, for me when I watched it this time around. And then we hear what I would say is like sort of the first of the great Malcolm X lines. We didn't come over on the, the Nita, the Pinta, and the, and, the, and the whatchamacallit. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Line of the trailer, man. That was the line of the trailer. You know, it didn't occur to me until literally yesterday. <laughs> is that the line Plymouth Rock landed on us is in the song Anything Goes from the musical. Oh, wow. Instead of landing on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock would land on them. And I went, and that's 19, I had to look it up. That's 1934. And we know that Malcolm loved music. We know that he, and you know that that song Anything Goes was being sung in those clubs that he was in. That's a good point. So I wonder if he consciously took it from that song or if he unconsciously did or if he just totally made it up on i mean the line's brilliant (laughs) and way more brilliant in this speech than it is in anything goes (laughs) and then who do we see sitting in the back of the temple shorty shorty is that you brother and shorty again this is a real guy and i love he sees him 
realizes it's him. And first, just the joy of seeing this person, but then also the he becomes the example. Praise be to Allah. Now, this is exactly what I'm talking about, the slave mentality, the slave mind. This brother and I, we had the slave mind. We used to rob together. We used to sleep with white women. We even went to prison together. Now, don't be surprised when I say we went to prison because some of y'all still in prison right now. Prisons of your mind. Which is what Bane said to him. I love the way he does this. And I love that Spike. I mean, Spike is so so genius in this shit. Like he said, first of all, the performance of Denzel in this moment as Malcolm seeing Shorty. And there's a Shorty, like there's almost like it's from back when they were friends. Like he's just so happy to see him in a small way. But he's a different person now. So it's not like, what's up? It's more a matter of like, oh, my God, I'm so happy to see you. And when he says Shorty, Spike looking to his left and right as if he's talking to someone else is just genius because that's mm-hmm. exactly what Shorty would do. And then walking up to him and talking to him and talking to everybody about him as an example. Can I just point out that something that may be lost that they're having this conversation, right? But the last time they were really together, like really was jail, was it not? No, it was the, before, before it's, it's, the court, it's in the court. That's court, the last right, time right, right, Shorty, yeah. yeah. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is to me, the, the thought of going to jail is so traumatic. And they went to jail for years and they're out talking like, I guess it was so commonplace for black men to go to jail at that time. Sadly still is. Yeah, sadly. Yeah. But what I love about this, and John will tell you, I'm not on the, um, I don't think the way that generally people of color always think I go a little bit one side or the other. But I like that De- that that Malcolm is, and I actually like this about the the Islamic faith for, for these people at this moment, mm. taking accountability for what they actually did. Yeah, mm-hmm. we can't just say like, "Oh, well, you know, society made me do it." He's right. saying, "No, these are the choices I'm making now. Like, this is not a con. This is who I am now. We got to put that behind us because those choices lead to." Yeah, where we were, which is jail. So it's not like the world just happens to you. You have to participate. And I love that uh, that Malcolm is trying to get him to realize, like, hey, we got to make different choices because this is where this is where we could go. He's trying to get him to be more. Yeah, em- empowering him as a black man. And I and that part I love about it. That's a great point, man. Well, I, and to me, it's also it also just points out how exceptional Malcolm actually is, hmm. because yeah. Shorty is just. Most people go into prison with a certain set of beliefs and they don't have the revelations that Malcolm has. Shorty's just where Malcolm was. He hasn't evolved. He's literally just said, I mean, Malcolm could have turned to him and said, I'm giving you God's words, not no hype. I mean, he could have said exactly the same thing. He, uh, yeah, yeah. he kind of does. I got to hand it to you, Red. That's the best preacher hype I ever did here. No hype, brother. That's the truth. It's Baines' words, but in through Malcolm's um, uh, perception. Yeah. yeah. And I love Spike throughout this whole thing. I like him going, take it easy, Greasy. This is Shorty. <laughs> My trouble is I love pigs, feet, and white women too much. It's like, damn, sure can't be no Muslim. <laughs> and it's funny, the thing I wrote down here, I think Malcolm, what we see is his ability to be just as intense in these kinds of scenes or in the speeches as he was when he was faux playing Russian roulette with that bullet. You know what I mean? Right. He's got that same power. It's a, and, and 
it's a it's a more laid back, confident power. So yeah. it doesn't have to overpower you in order mm-hmm. to make you do stuff. It's great. And I do want to say something too about the set design here. Is this is such a great, I mean, great sample of set design from the coffee cups to the old school Coca-Cola machine mm. to the to the things on the wall behind the female black Muslim that's there. All of it is just so well framed in how he's telling, uh, how he's showing this scene. And I think it's just genius, just brilliant. And it's simple stuff like that that keeps you in the world of a movie. And I think this is so good. And then we start to hear about, you know, ask about some of the old gang and all the old gang did not turn out, come to good ends, basically jail, death. And then we hear, ask about West Indian Archie. And as we're hearing about him, we see Malcolm X climbing up these stairs. Get the hell away from me. And by the way, this was all shot on the same night as they shot the Natural History Museum. So, so everyone is just, they had to like go across town to go to this shoot and everyone is totally exhausted. I'll pay you tomorrow. They go in and there's Delroy Lindo sitting in a chair and it seems very clear that he's like had a stroke. And what Spike said is he was so exhausted when he filmed this that he had no idea how amazing Delroy Lindo's performance was until he saw the dailies. He just didn't witness understand what he was doing because this performance is fucking amazing (laughs) and this is where i talk about him being over underrated i think he's underrated yeah oh yeah Uh, and this is this should have garnered something i don't know it's just Mm. mind-blowing but it's also a good lesson for any of you who are listening to us right now look what happened in the eight years in the power dynamic between these two men. Yeah. One went to jail. The other one stayed out of jail, kept doing what he was doing. But in essence, that life of crime, that life of running numbers and hustling all that shit, there's no positive end to that life. There really isn't. And he's showing you, right? Uh, what's his face? Sammy dies on top of that woman with, with $25,000 in his pocket. So not a yeah. poor man at all. Most people listening to us don't have $25,000 in the bank. And the other person, Cadillac, he gets hooked on the heroin. You see him sitting in that fucking sad hospital bed. And then West Indian Archie gets afflicted by this thing. And, you know, and what's he talking about? Oh, I I can still, you know, I've got some angles I want to play. Man, you ain't playing no angles in the condition you're in. Ain't nobody listening to your angles in the condition that you're in. Malcolm has, through the grace of Allah or God, whatever you want to say, found mentors to guide him to a stronger path, to a path where he can change the world, not just his block, the world. And so if you just understand that where you're at right now, it may not be the best place. There are, there are possibilities. If you keep striving to be better, to be educated, to be more self-aware, all these things, the people you think are in power over you now you never know where they're going to be eight years from now and where you're going to be. And so this is what I love about this whole section of the movie here is that there's a whole difference in the approach because Malcolm walked the path, a better path than crime. And if you walk the crime path or the, the fuck people over path, it's never going to end well for you. You know, John, what a, a great commentary that you just made. And uh, I think that it also is symbolized in the fact that, uh, Malcolm going to jail is like going through the birth canal and he came out this yeah. open, mm. wiser, more worldly, more 
omnipotent type of knowledgeable man. Yeah. And, you know, his counterpart there stayed in his lane. So they thought the universe of their power in that moment was going to last forever. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I came to uh, just to thank you. Thank you for saving my life. And I think back to when we were on the streets of Harlem trying to gun each other down. I wasn't going to shoot you, man. It was just my rep. And, and and the thing that's on his mind is, did you actually, did did you really play that number? Like, yeah. And 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 Malcolm's like, he's thinking way bigger. Like, yeah. It, it just shows that now it's like they're switched. Now Lindell's in prison. He's still he's been imprisoned from that moment. Yep. And then it is manifested itself physically. Where Denzel, I'm sorry, where Malcolm's just way open and and really taking on the world. Yeah, I also think that the just the contrast between this man that was so elegant and powerful mm. and confident to this guy who's sitting in this room, yeah, who and who clearly has nothing. I mean, I think you know, I could imagine the things and the struggles that he's doing day to day just to yeah. just to survive at this moment or barely survive and and he still has his pride you yeah. know what i mean it's still there and then the contrast with that with malcolm who at the moment he fled west indian archie he's basically says he had become an animal yeah to this guy who is so compassionate in the scene and so tender it's his tenderness that really is so moving to me yeah but he's going back to Chicago. I mean, and you're right. And both of you are right. I mean, Delroy, when he says, help me with my arm. Oh, my God. Oh, it's gosh. fucking heartbreaking the way he delivers it. And Delroy is just so good. I know people love Sam Jackson. I'll tell you right now, I haven't seen Sam do a role like what you see Delroy do in this movie and in um, The Five Bloods. Like, mm-hmm. Spike and him together is just magic. But Spike knows the power and you know of course samuel certainly has been shown really powerfully in sam in uh, spike movies but like this is just incredible john can you even talk about the the physical character acting his hands yeah rindell's hands it's as the detail no detail was left untouched and you talked about steve how tired they are when you're tired as an actor when you're (laughs) exhausted or when the crew is exhausted, yeah. it is easy to bypass the little details in in uh, in name of the big picture, no pun intended. But he didn't skip over any of those things, and I think that's what makes this performance so amazing. And ironically, sometimes you deliver your – and Steve, you must know this as a director as well. You deliver your greatest performance sometimes when you're tired because all the walls are down. There was a, a, a martial artsy sort of book, like a historical novel I read, and there was this guy who was super strong and could beat up anybody, but wasn't a good martial artist. And so this, it was uh, Japanese. And so this other samurai always waited till the end of his hor- huge workout before he would challenge him because he needed him to be exhausted because yeah. that's when he could learn. Right. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's-, that's, that became his great teacher. That's but because he had to get rid of all that other stuff. Right. And then we see Malcolm and he's making a speech and he's walking through mm. women that are obviously prostitutes and and he's talking about pride and he's talking about the community and says, What's the little boy going to 
to do when he's looking for his father and his father's downtown in jail. And as we move through this crowd, the camera lingers on this woman. And of course, it's Laura. Laura. And her mother's out there Laura. selling herself Wait on up the for street. Me who is based on a real woman who Malcolm met at 16 when he was working in the ice cream place. And this real woman, Laura, really did become a prostitute. This isn't actually, I mean, him walking by her at this moment in his life, that's created for the film. But what happened to her is actually true. Yeah. And what's, again, it's so perfectly written because we're hearing this speech as we're watching Laura get picked up by this white guy and we're hearing Malcolm say, Why, my brothers and sisters, he should get down on his knees. He should beg our mercy. When he says, get down on your knees, yeah. we see Laura get down on her knees. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Once again, those Spike teaching people, teaching the black community, teaching the white community to understand what the black perspective or the black, what the crimes against black people have been in this the history of this country you know this idea how many as he's walking through this projects this essentially gutted out projects saying you know watching these different women come up and and, and who are processed what happened to them I mean, they could have been doctors lawyers they could have been all these incredible things and that's still the narrative today how yeah. many you know as we see education being cut as we see these programs getting abused as we see these situations in the lower income communities that are that can be predominantly of color no matter what color black latino whatever it is asian what have you how how many people have, because of the way the system is set up don't get a chance to uh, change our world or become that thing that can or the doctor or the teacher or the lawyer or the influential person who's going to change our lives for the better because of the way the system is set up and it's so powerful what he's saying and yeah seeing it through laura because i think that's the last time we see Teresa randall yeah in the movie you know essentially she's given oh she's gone on her knees for something to give herself over to something completely different than what she could have been on her knees for you know here's uh here's two statistics two statistics for you uh there's uh, these aren't exact because i i haven't looked at this in a while but i'm pretty sure and this is today this is not the 50s yeah that today african-american families in the united states have on average one tenth the net worth of white families in the united states one tenth and there was a study recently in boston and again these aren't the exact numbers but it's pretty damn close to this is that the net worth of the average white household in boston was two hundred and twenty thousand dollars and the net worth of the average black family in Boston was $8. Not $800, not $8,000, eight bucks. Yeah. And the only way you could get to a number like that is how much debt and credit card debt those some of those families have to have because you got to have a lot of negatives yeah, yeah. in order to bring a number to $8. And you go think about what are the options for those people just based on those statistics, you know? Yeah. Yeah, And then, and it's, oh, this is also perfectly constructed montage because we went from him starting to speak, kind of maybe talking to some of the people coming out of church, getting one woman to decide to go to the temple. And now we come back to the temple and it's crowded. His kind has committed God's greatest crime against your and my kind every day of his life. He ought to get on his knees and say he's committed the crime. And we see that Baines is there listening, and there is a woman with him that we haven't seen before. 400 years is long enough. You've been sitting down and laying down and bowing down for 400 years. I think it's time to stand up. And people do stand up, and you see these are people that are, are convinced they're joining the temple. And then we get to meet Betty Shabazz. Mm. I think her performance is 
amazing. In this movie. Well, talk about underrated. How yes. does she not have an, an like six Oscars for God's sakes? And, and I don't know who I'll put this in, but uh, Angela Bassett has always been one of my celebrity crushes from, <laughs> from the beginning. Always. I respect that. Oh, Stella got her groove back. Sure, absolutely. She is so powerful <laughs> and beautiful and, yeah, an amazing, amazing person. And in a way, Steve and Andre, she symbolizes what Malcolm was just talking about in real life. And by mm. that, I mean how many of our black actresses were not allowed to be leads in these films, were not allowed to be successful, were not allowed to be inspirational on larger scales to other young black women. Now, more black women are getting opportunities to show. Now we're seeing so many more black creators uh, that are women who are running their own shows, executive producing, show, show running, doing all these things that are incredible and getting the opportunities to show what they can do. And now we need to be seeing that come forward with uh, nominations, with awards, with all these kinds of things. And so in a way, Angela Bassett was one of these women that was there at that time in the 90s when people were starting to really understand the power of this, of, of black women as actresses, but never got the full due because of an almost overtly all white voting body that rarely recognized black performances or performances of color. And especially in a movie like this, where they're not going to necessarily give too much love to yeah. it because it kind of highlights some of the white crimes that have happened against the black community. You know? What I love in her performance is her ability to, convey tremendous strength and intelligence mm. by being so soft and so humble in her approach. You know what I mean? Because you would think that if someone is that sort of quiet and humble, that we would, that it would diminish who we think they are. But in fact, the opposite occurs. You know what I mean? She pulls you in. Yeah. And I always tell actors when I'm working on films that those who shout and scream and push are really just pushing the audience away. But I, I, I saw this happen. Actors, they would barely talk. It's like I couldn't hear them. And I remember just leading in. And I, <laughs> funny enough, I'll tell you who it was. You're not going to believe this. This is off topic. But it was Brian Austin Green. Oh, really? Me, he BNG. said, I, I do that because you see how you leaned in? Yeah. The audience is leaning in too. And I was like, okay. Hey. And, and of, so, all so of, all of all people. But she's doing that, right? She's living in this quiet strength that you just want to get closer to to be a part of. And it's beautifully done. To me, it's like if I think of my favorite movie villains, like the scariest ones, they're almost all quiet. Yeah. Hannibal yeah. Lecter. Right, right, right. Michael Corleone. You know, like uh, Hans Gruber is not a loud guy. They're all, you know, have this quiet power to them, you know? Let's be honest. When, my, when your dad... Is not yelling, but he got quiet. Oh my God. Oh Lord have mercy. Game over, man. <laughs> it's I, scary, isn't it? Just the you, look. You you may or may not believe me, but I never heard my dad yell in my entire life wow. in anger. Ever. My dad never lost his temper. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, yeah. It was always quiet in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like my dad. I'm if I I'll yell all the time, but when I'm really quiet, you're in fucking trouble. <laughs> and my dad was the same way. Like same. Just okay. <laughs> Just that okay is the minister. Oh. Brother Minister, the sister wonders if you know what Sister Harriet Tubman did between taking souls to the promised land. Uh, no, was that sister? She ate. Oh, 
Um, and then what I love, because, you know, we know where this is going. Like, there's no, you know, like, okay, this is going to be the woman that he falls in love with. And I love Baines here. He does the whole, like, left to right when she asks the question. Then he goes, she's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) No matter how powerful the man is, a beautiful woman who wants him, who he has interest in, you saw she's, as far as stature goes within the nation, who is she at that time? No one. But she says one word, a couple few words, asks a question about basically, you know, when are you going to invite me to, to lunch or to dinner? And he's done. Yeah. I, I thought it was a beautiful show of this strong, powerful figure who gets, me- who gets you know, toyed with by the beauty of a woman. But the way it happens is so interesting. And part of it is he goes out to eat with her and we find out that she teaches health class to the women. And Malcolm is, we also see that he has become an important figure, that he is, she's asking him ostensibly to come talk to his class. And he says, yes, I'll speak to your class. But I'm a hard man on the women. Are you? Yes, we see, we have to be very careful when it comes to women. And then we go into a fascinating sequence, which is we're hearing Malcolm tell Betty about women's behavior and men and women. And then we are cutting to Elijah Muhammad telling Malcolm what to, essentially what to think about men and women and Malcolm parroting Elijah Muhammad's words to Betty. And saying those words back, I think is the first crack in the armor of the Nation of Islam. Mm. Because the first thing Elijah Muhammad says, who I've said has been very wise, you know, yes. says, Too many of our women have too much of the devil in them. Reaching and dying and ironing the hair, running around in the streets, half naked, talking too much, listening to the wrong men, making them deceitful, untrustworthy. But then when we get to the shot with um, him sitting with Elijah Muhammad, look at the way that's framed from the outside. And it's it's so, I mean, just the frame, Steve, you and Andre, you both the directors, you know, framing is so important. The first shot, which is the establishing shot between them we're seeing what looks to be like a you know a nice house in new york uh, with the window there a great view sitting in this kind of it almost looks like he's sitting in some kind of garden house or whatever and there with the or solarium as they used to say with the table there and and what have you and look at the way malcolm is sitting his hands are put over his lap to the left his feet are curled under he is very much in the respectful submissive position still in oh, yeah. this shot with with um elijah muhammad which is just great consistency at this stage of malcolm x's life and we'll see how as he pulls away from elijah he stands differently he moves differently there's more power more determination more confidence in where he's going next you're right john and spike puts elijah center frame and much right and and large uh almost in the foreground uh, the center focus really yeah, uh, and and places um, Malcolm not only turned to the to the side, but on the side. Of yes, so it's it's very uh, purposeful. Yeah. Then Malcolm goes into this, you know, very we have to control the women sort of speech. See, the building of a new nation begins with the woman, because the mother is the first teacher of the child. 
the message that she gives that child, the child gives to the world. So we have to be very careful. And I think, A, you can see um, Betty listen to this and not fully accept accept it. Do you know what I mean? Like she goes, okay, I know that's what you're saying. Um, And we can also sort of hear some of the fallacies. And I think to me, this is where it's like, just because a person is extremely wise in one area, we tend to go, well, they must be wise in all areas. Yeah, you know, right, right. Elijah Muhammad and Allah saved Malcolm Little's life and right. turned him into a new person. Therefore, everything this guy says must be true. Has to be true. <laughs> Mr. Muhammad teaches us if, if a woman is uh, the right height for a man, right complexion, if she's half the man's age plus something, and if she understands that man's essential nature is strong, and she's willing to support that. And if she's, uh, she can sew and she can cook and, and loves children and, and, and stays out of trouble. And I love that Betty says, I think you've made your points, Brother Minister Malcolm. <laughs> it's like, we know where this is going. You oh, know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but it's also a, like a nice hint, not of where, not only of where they're going together, but where we're going to see the divide between Malcolm yep. and Elijah. Right. right. And I think anytime someone gets religion and when I mean gets religion, I mean, they find like they were lost and they find something that saved them. And maybe that is, you know, going vegan and maybe that is going to Burning Man and maybe that is starting uh, CrossFit, you know, or maybe yeah. that is that you're in a 12 step program. Right. Anytime people do that, it's so transformative that then everything about that thing you want to tell everybody else and it must all be correct. Yeah, there's a story that is exactly like Malcolm's story, except it was a Christian who converted them, like a mm-hmm. criminal who goes to prison and someone saved them. And 70 percent of what saved them is actually the same as Malcolm's story. Mm. But they believe that other 30 percent that's different. That also must be 100 percent true. The white man is a devil. This is how it works. The black man never lived in a cave. The But, you know, like what all those things, yeah. maybe some of which aren't as true, you accept as true. And then clearly they don't just have a conversation about him visiting her class because the next thing we see, they are walking through the natural history museum, which of course was shot in the middle of the night because you can't take over the, you know, the natural history museum in New York. That's a crowded place. So it's the middle of the night. And this scene is really neat. Angela Bassett doesn't get a lot of time in the movie because she's coming in what the back 90 minutes of the film. Right. But the time she does get, she fills it with real chemistry with Denzel and real love that her character has, obviously, for Betty Shabazz has for Malcolm. And so that's the mark of a really great actress, a really great actor, regardless of gender, is the ability to fill the time they do have with a very rich life. And you can sense that almost immediately from the first flirty interaction to scenes like this. Yeah, and I really like how Spike very often captures them in a two shot. Yeah. You know, you're, you're rarely to see them in, in solos and they're in twos, a lot of profile or straight on, but I like how she always, not always, she made a very conscious effort to keep her head down. A little bit of a submissive gesture from the Islamic women's position. Mm. But so then when she raised her, eye, her, her gaze to meet his eyes, it was always like the world stopped moving. Yeah. And I thought it was a very interesting and powerful tactic she took as an actor. And I like how Spike helped them be a couple 
by the way he shot them as a director. Mm. What, what I love, it, both in the way she performs it and the way it's written, is that Malcolm just wants to talk about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And that's he's just kind of speechifying a little bit. Mm-hmm. And what she does is she doesn't stop him. She doesn't reject that. She just, in the gentlest of ways, redirects it. I love to teach. I love sharing. See, this is the wonderful thing about Mr. Muhammad. When he gives you this knowledge, when he shares this knowledge with you, you can't help but to run out and... and Excuse me, um, Brother Minister, would it be okay if we just sat down for a moment? And that just alone has taken it, stop talking about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. You've been on your feet for days, and uh, you didn't even finish your salad. Now, salad is a healthy thing, and we know that she's a nurse, and we know that she is health is what she's teaching her community and so she said you didn't even finish your salad and what do we cut to they're eating ice cream <laughs> it's just such it's a small choice but it's such a great one yeah and then the next thing that malcolm says is so let's talk about you for a change mm. how tall are you <laughs> we just heard elijah muhammad say you know if the woman is the right height for a man yeah so and she says why do you ask I love it. Where does this stuff come from? This idea of the height, you know, all of that. It's so weird to me. I mean, listen, (laughs) there's a lot of things in religion that's weird to me. Yeah, fair. fair. And I think what happens, and I think this maybe is a movie, and this will show my atheism even more, but like, (laughs) is that once a dude, you know, I'll say how I've seen it. So in martial arts, doing Aikido, I've yeah. met a lot of senseis and you learn a certain workout or a certain way to do a thing. And then someone becomes really good. And then they say, well, you should do this and you should do this and you should do this and you should do this. And then you learn from that person and that person was really good. And you go, well, this is the way to do it. And some of it is. And some of it is just some stuff that guy made up, you know. <laughs> Like, like you, I'm sure if you've ever taken a yoga class and they say this posture will cleanse your kidneys and this is really good for your liver. It's like, really? Did anyone do any science on this? Did you check the kidneys before and after the thing? But then the next student who took that class, they just say that. Yeah, it's good for your kidneys. I just, wow. I just accept it. I don't have a question. I go, okay, sure. It must be good. You, you should know you're the teacher. Let me just be the student for this. One. I had a glass of bourbon and did a downward dog and my kidneys were cleansed. <laughs> Speaking about religion and, and Angela Bassett's performance, mm. I do think what they did with her was so powerful because we've, we've put Malcolm in such a raised above all powerful, strong, yes. um, untouchable. And he is at the, she's got so much power. Now we've they verbally talked about how di- diminished and submissive they are. Yet she controls him. Okay, let's stop walking for a minute. Oh, you need to eat. Uh, even that initial flirting, she led the whole thing. Totally. So, yeah. I, I I just think it's so amazing that they say that the men are powerful, but really, the women ran the whole thing. Well, and let's let's be even more clear about what's happening here, Sandra. You bring up an excellent point that she even. I mean, how difficult is it? to play what she's playing in that she dials into the fact that she knows that she is in the Muslim, she's a black Muslim. And as the female member of a black, of the black Muslims, there is a certain amount of subservience that is expected, but yet Mm -hmm. she finds the way to walk the line between power and subservience throughout a number of these um, scenes. Right. And does it so effectively, as you said, she kind of, 
not commands, but certainly guides or leads where they go in certain interactions, right? But let's add another element to this, which I thought about as you were talking, Dre, kind of sparked a thought in my head. This is a man who has not lacked for being able to pick up a woman and have sex whenever he feels like it or do whatever as Malcolm Little, as Red. There was never a problem with him getting a woman. Now here we see this humanity, this um, this vulnerability, this like kind of trepidatiousness from Malcolm uh, in this version of Malcolm X and he, who he is now, right? There is this fear of being aware of what this is and only being able to talk about the Elijah Muhammad. These are the things that he is now relying on in order to function in a situation where he normally would have been had no problem in the past right. trying to get this woman. Now it's more a matter of because the stakes are higher. This is real. This is love. This is something that could affect his life very powerfully. So there is a fear of it in a way to respect and an awe um, of it as well. And so it's so great to see it play out in these interactions here with, with uh, Betty and slash Angela Bassett. Well, and what she does here, because she says, Brother Bain says that I'm tall enough for a tall man. <laughs> Which is saying, I know why you're asking me this question. <laughs> the only reason you're asking me this question is because you're interested in me. And she, he asks how old she is, which she refuses to answer. And then I love, it's just what you guys are saying, how she takes control of the situation. You know, Brother Malcolm, there are a few things about women that you don't understand. Some of us were quite possessive, very vain. And persistent when we've set our mind to something. And this is when she is in 100% control. He asks what she set her mind to, and she says, Being a good Muslim, a good nurse. And then she looks up and looks him straight in the eye and says, And a good wife. Ah, see? The moment where she looks him up in the eye. Because she's looking down most of that time. Yep. And decides to look up. And I think there's two things we see which points to the genius of and the creativity of Spike Lee and to this script is that Spike really puts uh, that character, puts him in a situation where, as you said, John, it was a great point. Mm -hmm. Prior to this with women, he has relied on himself. His, his own bravado has been his identity and which he's used to get the girl. Now, when he is not allowed to really be boastful about himself. It's almost like he doesn't know what else to talk about. Right. So right. he's relying on something completely outside of him. Mm -hmm. And she just like, okay, well, well, yo, listen, here's what I want. And she says, I'm going to get you sucker. <laughs> <laughs> That's the strange uh, subtitle for this movie. It's Malcolm X, also known as <laughs> I'm going to get you sucker. <laughs> um, True. But right at this moment, that's so great and so romantic and so powerful is in comes Earl because something has happened. Brother Malcolm, Brother Johnson was attacked by the police. What, what an interesting decision by Spike to stop this tender moment, not cut, have someone come in and essentially change the scene and remind you, hey, there's uh, as beautiful as the situation was here with him and Betty. There's a reality out. There's another reality out there that's existing for him as well. So just kind of giving you a foreshadowing window into the struggles between his relationship and his his responsibilities to the to the Muslim Brotherhood. So it's just it's a fantastic way to change the scene. He could have cut it. He could have mm -hmm. cut it to a call or to something else or anything else. Um, but he had someone come in and yank him out of that scene and bring him into the next scene, which is him dealing with Brother Johnson. Because here's the thing, John. Hmm. Spike is saying, 
that when you're black, you don't get to enjoy moments too long because there's something always over your shoulder screaming that you cannot relax because life will keep on coming. Uh, that's what I felt like. That's like, correct. oh, yeah. So that is a fantastic point. It makes my point sound stupid, but I'm going to say my point anyway, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is, this is still, it's classic filmmaking because this is Empire Strikes Back and Han and Leia having a moment and C-3PO comes in. Like you always interrupt oh, yeah. the romantic moment because that sustains the tension. If he, if, if the next moment Malcolm says, you know, I'm looking for a wife. Well, now the tension's that's gone. We're done. Right. You interrupt the moment, and now we have something to sustain us for further going on. Good point. But Andre's point is cooler than mine. <laughs> well, <laughs> both can be true, right? That's so right. we show up, we're on the street, we're hearing the crowd talking about what is happening. We're hearing some of the description that... There was a scuff. The brother was just watching, and the cop came on and said, move on. The brother didn't move quick enough for the old thing. I mean, crap, he was bleeding like a stuck hog. So what you gonna do? And then we start hearing... Muslims talk a good game, but they never do nothing. And then the camera is on Malcolm, and there's a long look. We cut to him walking up the stairs into the police department, and the power of Malcolm X slash Denzel Washington in this sequence is off the charts. We demand to see Brother Johnson. And at first, the police are just, who the hell are you? Some black guy's walked in and going to demand things? Two witnesses saw Brother Johnson brought in here, beat up. Nobody saw him brought out. You didn't hear the sergeant? Outside. And they're going to send him away. They're not going to give him anything. And then he says, I suggest you look outside that window. It's standing there is in a line. Is Muslim men, black men in their suits, standing with military precision and behind them a crowd. I like how they all look up at the same time too. It's it's awesome. The the direction and the, the choreography, I guess I'd say the coordination is so incredible. And Denzel's discipline to resist overplaying his power here yep. is incredible. He he understates everything which makes his power even more more uh, impressive. He does very little and it's just like wow. And and, and now the cops sort of now feeling a little bit different about the situation, uh, turn back to him and he says, yes, we intend to see brother Johnson. The word intend is a great choice. He didn't say we'd like to see brother Johnson. Would you please let us see brother Johnson? Can we see, he says, we intend to see brother Johnson. This is, this is why people fear an educated populace because an educated populace can absolutely short circuit, um, a, a corrupt, situation i wouldn't you know i'm not saying this is everyone but i'm saying this moment you can tell from the angry look on the guy who doesn't speak <laughs> the guy who's left to the the other lieutenant there the uh policeman he's just like slamming the book and turning it around and, and so that all of that you can tell that these this is a um a frustrating situation where the police have taken uh a man in without you know with uh with corrupt intentions and seeing the way Malcolm is calm and delivers this stuff and delivers the lines. These are the things that really upset the power structure of how intelligent some black Muslims were in dealing with these situations. And that's, it's so great to see the microcosm of it here and what Spike is detailing. Well, and I think police have experience dealing with chaos, right? They're used to dealing with anger, rioting, people acting as individuals 
when they come in disciplined and organized and calm, this is not a thing that you can, because the other thing too, it, it, even though Malcolm X is always put as the opposite of Martin Luther King, is there is a difference if they went after this group of completely silent men standing in their suits, mm. that's not going to look good. These aren't guys mm. rioting. Nobody's breaking any laws here. Yeah, but you can't see him because you ain't his lawyer. No lawyer, no see. Well, until I'm satisfied that Brother Johnson is receiving proper medical care, nobody will move. And the stare he look gives him at this moment, to me, again, I go back to the scene with playing Russian roulette with the bullet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That power that he had then is now focused like a laser beam. It's educated. It's it's controlled. Well, let me ask you then, Steve, with the with the uh, bullet, you know how he palmed that bullet. Right. He 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 knew that he wasn't going to get shot. He knew he was, he's right. protected. Do you think he knew he was protected here? I think nope. I was unsettled. I was scared for him. I thought they were going to break his head open like a watermelon. Uh, no particular reason I chose watermelon in the side the police department. I'm so glad you said this because you're totally right. Is what I think it, what I, now that you're saying this, what I think it actually is, is the courage he displayed uh, with the bullet that was to some degree false because he bombed yes. it is now for real. Yeah. Yes. I, die, I think he's, if I die, I die at this yes. moment. Yeah. And a great, there's a pause and then a great hard cut with a sound effect to this dank, dark cell. Oh, so. And we just, and Malcolm says, get an ambulance. Now! It's such it's such an incredibly well lit shot, isn't it? It reminds you of like animated stuff you've seen in in old school animation, where you see the kind of light into the dark room and these solo figures, faceless figures, because we just see two police guys standing there, they're faceless figures, and Malcolm is so well lit and brightly lit, and you so you can see the blood on also Brother Johnson's uh, on his face, on his mouth, and on the handkerchief that Malcolm is holding. So just really powerful stuff. You know, what just occurred to me. His yeah. father lay in the street for five hours while people walked by him. Good point. Right. Yeah. From a head injury. Yeah. And this guy, he said, no, we're taking this guy to a hospital. Yeah. And I would say if the sequence ended here, we would all go, wow, that was really cool. But the sequence does not end here. All right, break it up. You got what you wanted. No, I'm not satisfied. To the hospital. And the music with the military march and you see them all turn as a military unit and they begin marching and what I love too it's the combo of these silent men marching and the crowd following but yeah the music is so perfect it's just so well orchestrated there to hit certain beats to make it feel powerful yet also take you with them right and the crowd goes with them and then, of course, then Peter Boyle shows up in a random cameo. I know. But, yeah. and, and one of the guys, too, that Spike makes you notice is there's this young guy with a hat, yeah, which was right. going to become Brother Benjamin. This is uh, Jean-Claude Lamarray. And what's so great is we see his experience. He's this young kid who's never seen anything like this, mm-hmm. never seen a black man have power like this in the world. And they walk down. They stop in front of the hospital. The people behind them, the ordinary people, are shouting fists in the air. The group of black Muslim men, fucking rock solid. Camera moves past them, moves past all their faces, which to me is, it's like the answer to moving past all the faces of the prisoners in prison. 
The sound design is incredible. The score is incredible. Then Peter Boyle shows up, as you mentioned. All right, that's enough. I want these people moved out of here. Food of Islam are disciplined men. They haven't broken any laws. Yeah. What about them? That's your headache, Captain. But if Brother Johnson dies, I pity you. And then the doctor comes out, says he'll live. He's getting the best care we can give. And slowly Malcolm X smiles and he looks at his men. And this moment is so awesome, which he holds up his hand and they turn. And then his hand goes into a slow point and points down the road and they march off. The sound design on that alone, just on that, the simplicity of the sound design where we hear the fibers of the glove when yes. he turns oh, his face. It, it yeah. was, it stuck with me because it, it, it just made me think about how sometimes a director may overshoot things and may overdo it. All Spike did was let the hand move and let the sound do the rest. And I was like, <laughs> dang, the uh, confidence in your work at that point to trust yep. that that's going to be enough was incredible for me. That's too much power for one man to have. Which apparently this is a real thing. This really happened pretty much exactly, or my understanding has happened very much like this. And the police captain really did say that's too much power. I don't know why Peter Boyle and Christopher Plummer are in this movie, <laughs> but they're certainly really good. Yeah. I think it's, you know, like, I think they're probably honored to be in this movie. Yeah. You know, they're, they're liberals. They probably knew about the story. I mean, they lived during this time when Malcolm was doing what he was doing. So maybe there's a special kind of connection to be a part. Plus, it's a New York story. So having Boyle in there, right. you know, who's been a taxi driver and a number of other films set in New York. It's great. It's great authenticity. You know, there are a number totally. of cameos in this movie that are surprising to see. And I think all these actors were probably excited to be a part of an epic like this with a young director like this. Mr. X. My name is Benjamin, and, and I saw what it is that you did. I mean, the way you talk to them policemen and all. Oh, Mr. X, I want to be a Muslim. I think his performance is great. Like, they nail his character so perfectly with a few lines. I mean, I ain't never seen a nigga, I, I mean, colored person, Negro, talk to no police like that before. I also think it captured how, how, dis, how confusing it has been for what are black people called at different times? Of, yeah. Cause you didn't know Afro-American, uh, Negro colored black. I, I there were so what? many different. Yeah. He captures it all with just him. Cause he just doesn't right. know what to say. Yeah. Well, and they're all so loaded. All the, all the terms are so yeah. loaded and come yeah. from different eras of how, like I found out. So the, um, the Negro, the so-called Negro in America, I didn't know why they keep this repetition of the so-called Negro. Right. You know what it is? Go ahead. So what it is, is, is that it's because they are separated from their tribe and because they are separated from the tribe, the tribe of Shabazz or whatever we say the tribe is, it's like the X is because we don't have another, uh, the tribe to put their name as they are the so-called Negro. This is a false name. That is the meaning of, that's why they say, wow. Yeah. Which is it, which is obviously really interesting. Yeah. And and then this moment, uh, which I know means a lot to you, John. Yeah. And you want to be a Muslim. You want to join the nation of Islam. Yes. You know what that means? To be a Muslim? No, not exactly. But but I want to be one. I, I mean, just like you. Well, you should never join any organization unless you know exactly what it's about. 
yeah, you know, as I've said, and I won't belabor the point here, as I said, this is the scene that changed my life in the early 90s when I was in a fraternity. Um, and I realized I had to get out of it because I had not researched what that organization was all about. And I was left feeling very uncomfortable from some of the interactions and things that I'd witnessed being a part of that fraternity. And so for me, this was the moment where I made the decision right in the theater, right in that moment, I'm leaving the fraternity. And within a few days, I think, or maybe the next morning or the next couple of mornings, I went back there, packed all my stuff up, left school and left my letters there in the room. Uh, and never went back, you know? And so it was just such a powerful moment because I was kind of like that kid, you know, I was, was kind of lost and hearing that from that character, um, was just kind of hit me like a diamond bullet. And as I said, I was able to say that to Denzel Washington, when I interviewed him for equalizer Two. I said, thanks for that. Um, thanks for Malcolm X. And thank you for that scene. That scene changed my life. And so it's just like, you know, kind of just really powerful. You never know what scenes are going to hit you at what time in your yeah. life. That's why movies are so, 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 so much more important than people think they are. Well, I just want to ask you, John, and this is part of thematically aligning with the movie. The the things that you witness being a part of that fraternity and you're leaving, yeah. uh, it intrigues me because you, you see this young boy who's actually looking for a fraternity, quote unquote, to belong yeah. to. Yeah, community. Now, were there things that you felt were was it cultural or, or was it just things that were against your, your moral compass? Uh, did you join thinking like, Hey, you know what? I align culturally with these people. Like what was that process like compared to what we see in this scene? Yeah. Well with joining, it was because I was on campus and I had never been at a college and I was like, okay, I should join a fraternity. And I met a friend in a class. I really liked him. And so he was like, Hey, I'm a part of this. And I, you know, just was looking for some place to belong. And I was very, very lost back then. And it's also, you know, I was in the military at the same time as well in the reserves. So I was doing that at the same time as I was trying to go to college. And I had that experience. And so it was like I was searching for where I belonged. And I couldn't quite find it. And I was trying to do acting as well. So when I met that guy, I was like, okay, I'm going to try this out and do this. And but I didn't research it. I just went into it thinking, well, if he likes it, he's a good guy. Therefore, this must be cool. Yeah. And I joined it. And the things I witnessed, uh, yeah, moral compass situations. And certainly there was also the confusing factor that they did some they did charity stuff as well. But then some of those parties and some of the things I witnessed and some of the uncomfortable situations, like you know, having a guy who lived with us in the same trailer cheating on his wife constantly. And having to have his wife come visit him and you had to, you know, play silent. Um, and I know there are probably people listening going, that's the bro code. Well, it was always something I was uncomfortable with. And some of the things they would say about minorities, about women, about things like that, I was still kind of developing my own perception of all of that. And I think it just felt wrong and felt uncomfortable. And, and yeah, also some of the political leanings of it were uncomfortable for me as well. So it was a combination of a number of things. And I just had felt uncomfortable and unwanted. And just completely out of place. And it took that movie to kind of just kind of knock my head straight, you know. It's it's funny. I've, I've heard you tell this story many times, obviously. Yeah. But Too right many. now, right. Just, no, no, not at all. I'm an old it, man. It's, but well, I, what's interesting, I never heard reasons until just oh. now. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, and, and what I realized, I think this was like a critical moment in your life, it sounds like. like oh, This yeah. was a turning point. You know, because there are a lot of kids and, you know, people who are in a fraternity are largely kids, you know, they're 18 yeah. that 
they would just accept that this is the way it is and the fraternity would shape them you yeah, know right right into being that thing well it, it wasn't um, like i went down without having arguments and fights and debates with some of the members of the fraternity you know i even got brought out and judged during my pledging and and this was a really unsettling moment was they i had said something to one of the brothers because i felt like he was out of line and i stood up to him and i was not even a full brother i was a pledge they brought me into a special meeting with all the fraternity brothers there in like what you see malcolm talking in harvard later on in the film basically me center stage them all and then them all grilling me and asking me questions so embarrassing me there in front of everybody to apologize to this brother why would you say this why would you do that why would you what were you thinking so this idea this hierarchy that because these dudes happen to commit to a fucking code that somehow you as a human being coming in you are lesser than and should be treated lesser than it's 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 all this fictional nonsense and when i saw that when i experienced that and, and really that was one of the that was a very traumatic thing to experience being brought up in front of all these people and essentially um uh, cross-examined for standing up for something that I felt was incorrect that this person was doing, but because they were a fraternity brother, I was out of line questioning them as if somehow I stopped becoming a human being. And I was now a lesser than thing that I had to earn my stripes to be able to possibly question another human being about their behavior. It was ridiculous. Which we see in the movie. Literally. Yeah. That's what yeah. I was just saying is that, <laughs> I, I was going to say is that I think maybe to some people listening, this sounds like a, a, a personal digression. I don't think it is at all. Yeah, I nope. No, no, I don't think it is at all because I think a fraternity is, this is a perfect metaphor for what we're talking about yes. because people show up at a college and frequently you're really lonely and you're scared and you need guidance and you need a group and fraternities can be an amazing thing. And I'm not saying that there Absolutely, aren't they can be. fraternities can be awesome, yeah. but once you're within a group, a group dynamic is going to use its power to control what the group is, yeah. you know, and that can be used totally benignly, but that's exactly what happens to Malcolm is he's lost and he's alone and he finds this group and the group makes yeah. him who he is, you know, and then the, yeah. when he starts to have move a little bit aside, the group wants to control him, wants to discipline him. They want to isolate yeah. him. They do all those things because the group has to protect itself, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, and and there's even dialogue that states, "This is what the Negro needs. A Negro doesn't need this. A Negro needs that." You know, so there's there is dialogue that states that this group, this group mentality, uh, operating in a certain way, is the answer to the despair that yeah. the Negro feels. The in, only in answer. That side. The only answer. Yeah, right. The only, the only answer. answer here. Because I think you could say it certainly is an answer. Right. It, right. it helped Malcolm tonight. I shall introduce you as my national minister. This is the rise of Malcolm X. Yeah. Beware of them cameras. Oh, them cameras are bad as any narcotic. Which I think is a great moment. And then, and this is where Elijah Muhammad is so brilliant and why the betrayal is so painful because he takes a glass and he pours water into it. And then he takes some ink and pours ink into the glass. Dirty. Water. Foul. If you offer this to the people, they have no choice. They'll drink from it. 
if they're thirsty. Pours another that's clear. Let them make their own decision. They will choose the pure vessel. Islam is the only religion that addresses the needs and and the problems of the so-called Negro in America, especially in the slums and ghettos. It's like exactly what we're talking about. Which makes it feel put on and staged to me. Really? Yeah. When he says, like, it's the only one for the Negro, it's almost like, for, for me, that moment felt as though there was the question to be raised as the character starts to fall down their mm. hubris of this was more about him controlling and uh, a group of people where it may have started to be about help, but you start to see the cracks in Elijah Muhammad within the context of this movie, talking about control, talking about um, position, offering choice as if it was his to offer. Whereas before we heard it all in the context of their God and, and we slowly start to hear it in context of Elijah Muhammad right. uh, more so. So the, I, I don't know if it's by design script wise, but it feels like we're starting to see the, uh, the cracks of the foundation um, within the leadership and the religious aspect of this movie. I think I have two totally contradictory thoughts. The first is, is that if it were me, Steve Morris, who said, and someone said, this is the only anything John can tell you anytime anyone says this is the only way my whole personality goes. Nope. World's company, you know, like I'll always argue against it. But if I'm Malcolm, who has had his life saved, and someone says this is the only way, yeah, yeah, it works for me, right? And and this is what makes him such a um, incredible figure because, and this is why I think people respect him when they study him and really go in depth in who he was as a person. His commitment to something when he believes in it is total. Yeah, when his commitment is destroyed or um, he finds fault in the commitment, he goes just as um, uh, dedicated the other direction, um, and that's there's something to be admired in that. There is there is a, a real commitment to his beliefs. He is not on the fence all the time. He's very clear about what he believes. When that belief is questioned, when that when he discovers you know what he discovers about Elijah Muhammad, he leaves and creates something else because he knows there's a way to do this that is not as corrupt and he wants to create the possibility of doing it without corruption uh, just as fervently as he was being a part of um, the Muslim brotherhood, you know, and it's, it's, it's powerful. And, and this scene is really interesting too, because this is a scene for every leader, for every leader, political or otherwise. Like he said, if people are, he throws it in those last two, 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 three words, right? If the people are thirsty, that is so important to what he's saying. Because people feed us water filled with black ink all the time. Yep. The people who drink it and willingly believe it are the thirsty ones. Why are they so thirsty for the black liquid, for the for the corrupt liquid? And that's the question that you have to ask yourself. And if you're a leader, you have to strive to deliver the pure message. Not that the Muslim Brotherhood is the only, more like a pure message that is not stained um, that is not driven by something corrupt. And that's, um, that's what you find nowadays that, or I guess every generation, every decade that too many leaders do, unfortunately. And what we hear him say, and this is directly from the autobiography. This sweet, gentle man at whose feet I kneeled gave me the truth from his own mouth. 
And I adored him in the in the sense of the Latin root of the word adorare, which means to worship and to fear. He was the first man I ever feared, and I don't mean fear such as one has of a gun, but the fear one has of the of the power of the sun. I pledge myself to him, even if it cost me my life. So first of all, it's beautifully written. Second of all, it's very powerful. And the third thing, and I think I mentioned this before, is he started working with Alex Haley on the autobiography before the split with the Nation of Islam. Right. This was written before the split, before he had felt betrayed by Elijah Muhammad. And they, he and Alex Haley made the choice to not edit anything, to leave it be as he felt then when he said it. We cut to a phone booth. <laughs> Apparently, they carried this phone booth with them to every single location, waiting for, like, if they had a moment to just shoot this one little scene. <laughs> uh, and they actually did it, I think, at the uh, right after the police station scene is where they shot it. Hello. Hello, Betty. Yes. Yes, it's Malcolm. I know. Because <laughs> Betty always knows. <laughs> she, do you think that she knows she's about to be proposed to the moment she hears his voice? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Will you marry me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you heard what I said, right? Did you hear my answer? Yes, I think so. <laughs> mm. Really great stuff. It makes me cry just thinking about this scene because it's so lovely. Just yeah. so lovely. And I love that he says, she asks, are you eating? He says, I've been eating. And then she he says, and it's just from this guy. He's never said these words like this in this film. I love you, Betty. He didn't tell Sophia that right. he loved her. Right. Didn't tell Laura he loved her. It's so vulnerable and so true. Uh, and then we move to the scene. They're both in white, and he's talking about how difficult this is going to be and because of his travel, because of his work, and she shuts him up. You're with me, even when you're away. That is a great line, man. I, how many t I don't know how many times I wrote down how powerful I think Angela Bassett is. Uh, yeah. Right. Queen. Then she says something really interesting. She said... First time I ever saw you, and I felt so sorry for you. Sorry for me? Mm -hmm. Why? Because no one as young as you should be so serious. <laughs> and I like where she takes it, too. She says, but I don't think that anymore. What do you think? I want to have a lot of babies with you. <laughs> it's such a great relationship. Yeah. And then we cut to them getting married. And now we're going to go into the serious speechifying. It's like sort of one long montage of speeches and statements. I, I don't know if I should play them all because they're all so good. I don't know if we should break them down line by line. But the, the rhetoric, the logic, the power of the way that Malcolm X speaks is just incredible. And because I, I love just in terms of writing the use of repetition, which is very preacherly, you know, um, and out of a certain tradition. But he says... So I'm not here this afternoon as a Republican, nor as a Democrat. Not as a Mason, nor as an Elk. Not as a Protestant, nor a Catholic. Not as a Christian, nor a Jew. Not as a Baptist, nor a Methodist. In fact, not even as an American. Interesting choice of all the things that he... To mention Mason, to mention Elk, curious that he brings those into... The forefront, uh, not the forefront, but into the mix. It's a really interesting question. I wonder why it's there. Um, so he set up all of these things that he's not. 
Because if I was an American, the problem that confronts our people today wouldn't even exist. That's right. So I have to stand here today as what I was when I was born. And there's a cut. And then he says, with strength and pride and power. A black man. Because, because then he goes back. And this is what I mean by the beautifully structured speech over each of those things and says before there was any such thing as a republican or a democrat we were black before there was any such thing as a mason or an elk we were black before there was any such thing as a jew or a christian we were black people in fact before there was any such place as america we were black and after america has long passed from the scene there will still be black people what I think is so – so this is probably 64, 63, 64 at this mm-hmm. point, I think, mm-hmm. is the movement, the Black is Beautiful movement is just about to start. Yeah. And I think this speech, what he's saying here is like – it's like the seed. You know what I mean? This idea of turning this thing that has been what – you know, look white, don't it, is where we first see Malcolm mm-hmm. X. And now he says before there was anything – we were black people. Which goes back to what he said when he was talking about, or was it Baines? Maybe it was Malcolm. He said, how many of, you know, how many people uh, from the inner cities would have been, could have been. Yeah, it's Malcolm. Yeah, Malcolm. So we were kings, all of that. And how many could have been Hmm. doctors, lawyers, all this kind of thing. So he's saying, he's saying all of this. Like you have to remember that this is at your core. You are a black man. And that's, you know, all these other things are identifiers, but you, there's one thing you can be a part of all those organizations and you can leave all those organizations, but you can't leave being a black man. And that's yeah. the, I think that's why that's the one. So you mentioned all the elk and all that stuff. And it's ironic because he's part of an organization in the brother in the Muslim brotherhood. But in the end, what he's saying is you could strip all of that away. And at the end of the day, nothing can touch the fact that you are a black man. That is your foundational truth. Well, I think it's interesting in contrast with Martin Luther King, where there's certainly pride and there's certainly strength and discipline. Those are definitely things they're shared. But there's a softness in the way that Martin Luther King feels that these ideas must be presented. Right. We don't want to scare them off. And Malcolm is saying, I don't care. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to get in trouble. Martin is Martin. You can cut this out. Martin is driving Miss Daisy. Malcolm is do the right thing. That to me is, as I get older, that's what I kind of come to terms with and realize. It doesn't mean that Martin didn't sacrifice, wasn't put in prison, certainly wasn't, didn't have his life threatened. He did. But his pursuit was of a softer approach to racism. Malcolm was like, you got to look at what this is. You got to confront what this is in a stronger manner to get certain people to wake up. But both are necessary. So the difference is the difference, but both are necessary to wake people up to the abuse and the mistreatment of Black Americans in this country. So yeah, and then the question is, which one do you think was heard louder, more by more people? Which one made more of a difference? Uh, see, and this is where I think I with John, which is that you need them both. And I think this yeah. is the tension. Um, and again, uh, you know, I know I'm the white guy, but the attention that is, exists within the African-American com- community 
forever in America is it's Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. Booker T. Washington is we just have to work really hard and be really, really nice and it's going to work out. And W.E.B. Du Bois says, no, we have to take pride and be what we are. It's Jack Johnson and Muhammad Ali versus Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson. Yeah. These two presentations, one that is strong and prideful that scares white people sometimes and the other is softer and both of them seem to me to be necessary mm -hmm. and the next thing he goes into is the way that the white man and the white establishment is controlling them through drugs and prostitution and alcohol and that all of those things you essentially you have to ask permission of the white man to do these things that are destroying the community now there are things that i agree with in that and disagree with that but it is but certainly those things are destroying those communities i don't disagree with that oh i see it i see it again you've been had you've been took you've been hoodwinked bamboozled let us straight run them up i think at this moment he is malcolm x let me tell you something. As, as great as Denzel is in this movie, and he is, he is absolutely great. When you listen to those Malcolm speeches, Denzel doesn't even come close. Like it's, <laughs> and wow. Denzel is incredible in the film and really captures the essence of Malcolm. And he delivers incredible versions of Malcolm's speeches. But even someone as talented as Malcolm, as uh, uh, Denzel, doesn't come close to when you listen to the passion and the intelligence and the construction of these speeches um, from Malcolm. Cause obviously you only get snippets, Steve, as you were saying, right. It's a montage. You're only going to get snippets, but if you get, if, but there are eight to 10 to 20 minute speeches you can listen to that will absolutely uh, decimate you in the, their construction and the way he's laying out the points and the overall thing that he revisits uh, at the end of his speeches that are just phenomenal. And so um, it's great to watch Denzel do versions of them, do versions of them. And they're pa very powerful within the movie. Um, but for anybody listening, if you haven't gone to listen to the full context of these speeches, do yourself a favor and do that and get educated by what Malcolm is saying. We cut to a bigger hall. And that's, of course, what's happening as well through this montage is we see this growing. And now what we hear is we see Elijah Muhammad in the background and he's basically saying, I want you to understand one thing, everything that I teach you. Everything that I said to you has been taught to me by this dear man, this divine man. I feel like for me, I feel uncomfortable with this sycophancy, you know, at this point, I was a little bit uncomfortable with it, with the, uh, him talking about what, you know, a woman and putting words in Malcolm's mouth. And you go, and I think I, I feel like I'm growing increasingly uncomfortable as time mm. goes on. He talks to uh, Betty and we talk about how much time they're spending apart, but how much he's accomplishing. And while this is happening, he's like watching TV. So we're seeing images of white supremacists and we're seeing images of Martin Luther King and those civil rights protests. And we're hearing things of his speech uh, coming through and all of this is happening at once. And the white people oh, who have practiced Please white supremacy try to hide their guilt by accusing the Honorable Elijah Muhammad of being a black supremacist, simply because he's trying to uplift the mentality, the social and economic condition of his people. And the Jews who have been guilty of exploiting black people for I don't know how long, try to hide their guilt by accusing the Honorable Elijah Muhammad of being anti-Semitic. I think it's a beautifully done montage. I think that multi personally, multiple things can be true at the same time. 
that it is very possible to be anti-Semitic and very possible to be doing good things for your community and wanting independence and having good goals. I think all those things could be happening at once. And I didn't realize that it was a common uh, uh, common knowledge that or generality that Jews exploited blacks. Until you saw the movie? Until I saw the movie. Yeah. I, I, I'd never actually heard of a Jew-black rivalry, so to speak. Um, it's is that commonplace? It is. It, well, I mean, there's the famous quote, which I think is, it's either Al Sharpton or Louis Farrakhan who called New York Jaime Town. Oh, yeah, it was... Uh, Shit, who was I think it was Farrakhan. I think it was. I think it was Farrakhan. Hi, this is Steve jumping in for a quick correction. It was, in fact, Jesse Jackson who described New York City as Jaime Town in 1984, but Louis Farrakhan jumped in to defend him. Jesse Jackson later apologized. This is an old, and it's very much like what we were talking about, I think, in a way, with the Korean uh, shopkeepers in Do the Right Thing, Mm. is their communities that are rubbed up against each other, and the Jews were frequently the merchants and frequently the lawyers, or they run all the clubs that those musicians played in, they were run by Jews. Right. And so like, the, you know, it's one of those tensions that I think, I mean, every Jew I know, but it's part of where my background is, is they're all liberals who wanted to mar- march with Martin Luther King. You know what I mean? Like, that's the community that I grew up in. So it has always seemed like a weird thing. But I also go like, well, if you were a jazz musician, and you got paid, you know, 25 bucks to lay down a recording and the Jewish guy who paid you made a thousand bucks off it. You'd be pissed. Yeah. You know? There's a long history of that in the music industry, regardless yeah. of ethnicity, you know, Jewish or not, white people exploiting black people and making money off their stuff. But you're right. It's a great point. And look, I mean, we just did a few weeks ago, right? We did Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. You couldn't find two more liberal people on the planet. Yep. Yet they had issues with the fact that their daughter was marrying a black man, you know? So it's just like... Yep. You can be as liberal as you want, but on the on the outside. But when it's actually happening to you on the inside, how that's when your liberality really gets tested, or your progressiveness really gets tested. And so, um, but yeah, and look, there's a great uh, song in um, 1776 where he's singing molasses to rum to slaves. It's not necessarily a Jewish to black connection, but that is connection. Right. This idea that the North was somehow not involved in slavery, and it was really exposing that lie. And this is yet just something else here in Malcolm X kind of educating people about some of the uh, attitudes or perceptions or narratives that people have experienced in a historical context. And certainly Jewish, the Jewish black uh, thing has been there for quite some time. I mean, even the Sopranos had a with Hesh having a black woman as his girlfriend that or wife. That was a big deal in the Sopranos. They even alluded to that, you know, in, in that way. Well, and I, I think, I'm trying to think of how I want to say this, is that if you participate in a system which has systemic issues, and if you benefit from that system, yeah, how how much guilt should you take for that system? And I'll take it to completely out of this experience, is that yeah. I'm talking to you right now using my Apple computer. I have an iPhone in my pocket. I own stock in the company of Apple. I think in general, Apple is trying to be a good company. And there's certainly an argument that they use close to slave labor to build all these products that I love. Right. So I'm both using these products and paying the company and I'm benefiting because I own stock in the company and my stock goes up. So to what degree am I participating in a system that is exploiting people? That's a good point. It's a tar- and it's it's a very difficult question to answer. Yeah, because in, unless everyone's getting everything the same 
then someone's going to feel exploited. And if everyone's getting something the same, then there's no room to recognize actual growth and to have people like Malcolm X emerge or people like uh, Martin Luther King emerge because there's no need for uh, extraordinary people if everything is the same. So it could be seen as exploitation or it could be seen as uh, necessary because there is no all good or all bad. Things are, uh, like you said, Martin Luther King is needed and Malcolm X is needed because they're on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think that's the same way in life. Well, and I, and I think too, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot and I know we're going extremely slow. Listen, I'm sorry, (laughs) but I'm enjoying the conversation. I hope you are, but it's like, I don't agree with everything Malcolm X says. Right, Right. In fact, there are things I strongly, strongly disagree I think I benefit hugely from listening to this very smart person who I frequently disagree with. That's the point. You know, he challenges me to think in a better way. You know, I'm clapping for you, Steve. Oh, thanks. You know why I'm clapping? Because right now in today's climate, which is why I'm so glad we're talking about this movie right now. A boot. Yeah. (laughs) Talking a boot. Uh, (laughs) We have gotten so far away from being willing to have conversations or listen to people that we disagree with. It has become, you have to believe all one thing or believe all another thing. And those two sides stay on opposite sides of the room. And there's so many untruths spouted against one another because it's in the name of being right, that we're missing the dialogue that's going to bring people together. So I think what you said is something that I wish more people would do is being willing to have the conversation and hear and learn something from people that they disagree with. At the very least, let's see his life and go, man, I understand why this makes sense to him. And this line, the way he ends this particular speech is he's talking about black people having economic independence, which to me is something that is impossible to argue with. And he says, this isn't black supremacy. This is black intelligence. Mm-hmm. How, how can you argue with that point? Yeah. And again, we're, we're starting. It's, it's interesting that we had this conversation organically because now we're starting to see the contrast with the other African-American leaders, particularly Martin Luther King Jr., because we see more of his demonstrations. And he says, and we thought by following those ignorant Negro preachers that it was godlike to turn the other cheek to the brute that was brutalizing us. By the way, the music that's playing during this sequence is John Coltrane, and it was a piece that he wrote in response to the bombing that killed the four little girls in church. A hundred years ago, they used to put on white sheets and sick bloodhounds on us. Well, nowadays, they've traded in the sheets. Well, some of them have traded in the sheets. They've traded in those white sheets for police uniforms. They've traded in the bloodhounds for police dogs. This is challenging. I think this is a difficult thing for most, you know, liberal folks like me to hear. We hear about Uncle Tom's as we're looking at Martin Luther King. You got these chicken pecking Uncle Tom's so-called Negro leaders today. Isn't that a great thing? You've got these Uncle Tom Negro leaders today that are telling us we ought to pray for our enemy. We ought to love our enemy. We ought to integrate with an enemy who bombs us, who kills and shoots us, who lynches us, who rapes our women and children. No, no, that's not intelligent. That's a persuasive argument. Mm. Right. Except for the fact that it's unintelligent to say that all of them are one are are that. Exactly. Right. And, and this is just this is the time in his life that Malcolm was at, right? This is right. This is where people want to keep Malcolm X. They want to keep him 
in this time frame, they only want to allude to these speeches and to the elements of these speeches to say, don't listen to him, or he was a revolutionary, he was a violence, a guy who supported violence, a reactionary. He was a guy who at this time believed this because of what Elijah Muhammad had taught him, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad taught him, what he had learned being a Muslim. So the things he was saying here were indicative of those points of views and those feelings. I mean, we're going to get to that scene where the girl walks up, the white, lily white girl walks up and wants to help him. And he's like, nothing, you know, and that you can't do anything to help us, you know. And so this is the perception at the time. And so many people want to manipulate Malcolm's history, Malcolm's um, place in, or legacy want to only focus on these speeches at this time rather than putting them in context. Right. I really yeah. Important. I think you got to put in context, John. I think you're right. Yeah. I think, you know, he did say all these things. He did believe them and you can't shy yeah. away from that. But if you look at his statements at the end of, right. you know, the, the, the last quarter of his life, um, a lot of those things he retracted and you know, all those things he um, displayed a new philosophy on. Right. And I think that that cannot be lost because it's important to recognize the growth and the maturity that he that he have throughout the course of his life. That yeah. No one's one way the whole time. Yeah. And do we know how old he is when he's making these speeches? Right. He got thir- early 30s, 30, right? 35, early 30s. maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is. The th- and so the change that happens uh, happens for him. It's the unfortunate tragedy. You know, the visit to uh, Mecca, all of that changes his message completely. Um, And how many of us are the same person we were in our 30s that we are in our 40s or our 50s or the same person we are in our 30s that we were in our 20s or our teens? You know, we all change. We all progress. But unfortunately, people want for their own narratives to just pigeonhole people into one section of their life and go, this is the person. This is the person. Now, I may have changed and I may be different. Because I'm not feeling it, but this person was like this. I know it. You know, it's just like, well, you're, you're being ignorant. You know? And we see that even with Twitter. People oh, yeah. will go or oh, seven, eight years back. Yeah. Eight years ago, they'll find a, a tweet, a post, or hey, even a recording. And, <laughs> and they'll say that this is who they are. Now, they may still have consistent behavior, but I do think that people do and can change. And we can't limit somebody to what they said when I was 30. This I mean, man with blonde hair and blue contacts <laughs> is proud to be black. That's me. So, and I, I want to change the context again. So, so what he's saying is that it is not intelligent to love the person that's trying to hurt you. That's his state. That's what his statement is. So let's translate that today into whatever side of the political spectrum you're on and have someone, maybe it's like, coming to a gay person and saying, you should really love the people writing that don't say gay bill or coming to a conservative and saying, you should really love those people that are canceling celebrities that who say things that you agree with. They would have the same response as Malcolm X. That's not intelligent. You, I can't, I can't love those people. Those people are evil and wrong. Whatever side of the political spectrum you're on today, there are many, many people that are just like, it is all or nothing, hate them, try to destroy them or not. That's it. So I think Malcolm X is speaking exactly like the way people are talking today. Unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately. And then we cut to, at this scene, I'm very curious to hear how you react to this scene. We're in a TV studio. Malcolm X has obviously reached a certain level of uh, notoriety. And the first of all, the way the interviewer frames the discussion, <laughs> he, he, he introduces Malcolm X. He says... Before we- in our discussion tonight, the black Muslims, hate mongers, 
So right there, it's not a very welcome environment. He asked him to explain the meaning of his name, which is that... During slavery time, the slave master gave the Negro, so-called Negro, uh, named the so-called Negro after themselves. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that once we come into the knowledge of Islam, the knowledge of ourselves, mm -hmm. we replace our slave name with an X, X in mathematics representing the unknown. And then this other gentleman, African-American, clearly a well-educated scholarly man, says... Why do you teach black supremacy? Why, why, why do you teach hate? So, first of all, again, this is a fairly brutal question in the way that it's framed. But then what Malcolm does is I have a strong reaction to. Well, for the white man to ask the black man why he hates him is like the wolf asking the sheep or the rapist asking the rape, do you hate me? The white man is in no moral position to accuse the black man of anything. Well, this is a black man asking the question. How do you feel about what's happening first just in this moment? Well, I think that he's intentionally asking him because he's saying you're not black. He's yes. basically calling him white. Yeah. Th yeah. And and I think that uh, the the sad thing is, it's, it goes back to what John was saying a few minutes ago, is moments like this distance people from actually finding and hearing the gems that he had in his in his speeches and in parts of his philosophy. But I think that whenever you, if if it's wrong to exclude, if if whites are racist. To then exclude someone who is black for not believing the same as you makes you the same as the white person who you're speaking out against. So he suddenly is treating this black man who we could look at from the uh, black point of view. Hey, this guy's educated. Like you said, he he seems like he's done well for himself. Maybe this guy should be also celebrated. Uh, but I, I it, it it's tough because it's very much what the black community is. If you are one way, if you're not believing on one side, you're, you're an uncle Tom, you're a sellout. And basically there's, he's saying you, sir, are a sellout. Yeah. I mean, Chris rock, one of his most famous bits is talking about that. That's, you know, like, Oh, they celebrate you getting out of prison more than they celebrate you getting your master's degree. That's what he said. And he said that in the black community, right? I mean, he's like, you know, this idea, what, you got a master? Well, you my master now? You my master? You got a master's degree? And it's like, that's not what we're talking about here. So this is something that becomes a prevalent issue. But also what's being presented here, which I think is fascinating within the next within the next part of the scene here is I had, as Andre said, I, you know, he didn't he didn't know that there was an issue between Jewish people and black people in in at his time when he saw this film. I had never framed the slavery uh, conversation with the house Negro and the slave and the plantation Negro, the field Negro. I had never even considered that. And when I saw the movie, my eyes were like, wow, it's it changed my perception completely of that. And we have that in the Latino community. You know, there's some people who are, who kowtow and completely give in to the white power structure in order to get their benefit while a majority of Latinos suffer at the white power structure and they don't want to speak out about it because they're benefiting from it. Right. And, or they abuse it or they use it to step on other Latinos to get their success. And that, that to me, I see. So there are versions of that in our community as well, but that was the eye opening thing that I'd never even considered because in my mind in the past, I thought it was like with the Holocaust, right. Where there were Jews being used in those camps 
they were they were being to survive they had to do this stuff to kind of lead jewish people or organize them or do whatever so so that they could live another day that's a survival mentality and that's how i connected slavery that these people were in charge of these slaves as the house slaves uh, they were put in this position and they did it because they were afraid to die but this idea that he's comparing them to these, some of these people took these positions willingly to feel a little bit of superiority over their fellow fellow black man or fellow black woman was something I had not even considered until I watched this movie. You know? Oh, that was a, an often discussion had, hey, oh, you think you'd be a, a house digger? I feel nigger. Yeah. And then the other thing they would say within the community is, if you're light, you might. Wow. Wow. I've never heard that. Oh, all the time. In Hollywood, too. Oh, if you're light, you might. Oh, Dre, you're kind of reddish brown. You're not like, you're not dark. So, like, uh, I had a roommate, Abe. He was midnight, like oil. And it's two, they look at his two, like, uh, two different, uh, two different people almost. Yeah. But but not to, within the black community, but to the racist white people who are racist, they're all black. Right. They're, they're all, they're all, they're all less than. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's a great point, John. It is definitely something that black people, at least my friends, yeah, we've talked about, we've joked about, you know, and I have also heard that yeah. in L.A. Um, uh, in my time, you know, going through the uh, the ranks, so to speak. Well, you know, uh, two friends of the show that we've had on the show, Steve, uh, for Black Panther, Jay Washington and, and Winston A. Marshall, that is a running joke between them because Winston is lighter than Jay, and Jay brings it up on their Blurds in the Hood show all the time. They kind of give him shit about it, and Winston at times gets a bit irritated in certain moments, but also pushes back on Jay. So this idea of you know the colorism meaning you're somehow the the house Negro over the the field Negro is is something that's very it, it's so fascinating, and complex to explore the black culture in this country and, and what Steph Curry versus LeBron, yeah. Wow. Steph is in the house. LeBron's in the field. Oh, yeah. Right. Fair. Wow. So for, I t- had to take a moment to think about that for a sec. So <laughs> first of all, John, I'm with you. I'd never heard any of this until this movie. Yeah. And now, and it's one of those things, too, where once you learn it, you can't yeah. stop seeing it everywhere. Yes. You know, like you think about the treatment of Colin Powell or you think about, you know, mm-hmm. like people that that and reactions within this community. The, the, the second thing is as a Jewish kid is that it's the opposite because you better damn well better be a doctor or a lawyer or a stockbroker. And if you said, I want to be, you know, a plumber, it's like, how dare you? The split is, you know, you are supposed to be the strive to excel and be in the join into the society in all those different ways. Um, the third thing, and I just want to say it because it's, it always bugs me. So this term and uncle Tom is that, uh, I've actually read the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah. I don't. I, I don't highly recommend it to people. It's not really a great book. It is the second most popular book of the 19th century. It's like the biggest hit. It's the biggest blockbuster book almost of all time, and it is largely not largely. It is one of the big pillars of the abolitionist movement that helped free the slaves. So it always bugs me while I understand the origin of that term, but it's also like, look, this book was. Yes, it was written by white people. Yes, the character of Uncle Tom loves the little white girl that he's taking care of. And that's where this comes from. But it was also a book that helped end slavery, you know? Yeah. The truth is, like everything else, people will consume something a lot easier if it's candy coated, if it's softer, if it's just 
where they're not made to feel as terrible about themselves, right? It's just the truth, and that's human nature. But that doesn't mean the rebel rousers, the rebels, the revolutionaries, dare I say it, the outlaws, aren't necessary <laughs> to, you know, to open up the door for other people in other segments of society to feel heard, to feel like they've got someone they can follow, someone who speaks for them. I think that's important as well. So going back to our points earlier, of like both Malcolm and Martin being so essential in the civil rights movement and in the changes in this country. I just want to also point out, and I know I talk too much, but I'm almost done here, is that... Uh, you fit it right in on the show, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there have been so many conversations that I've had in the Black community, in the Jamaican community, Caribbean community, and I find it really interesting, is that when you look at and the, the, the conversation around Barack Obama and, and Kamala Harris, oh yeah, sometimes they're not viewed. Oh, oh Barack's he's not a full black. Mm, right. and, and and Harris is not fully black. See, they're not gonna give us someone who's like full, full black. They're gonna give us someone who's, you know, mixed or something. They they they're not ready for that yet. And I think it's just so unfortunate that regard and I think this goes both ways, to say to make that statement, uh it should be less about that and more about what the person stands for and then to disregard what this person could stand for just because they're not fully black or whatever that, you know, I mean, uh, pure blood Slytherin. I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's putting us in the same position that racist people are in. Yeah. Like to, to deny the credibility of somebody because they're not fully anything is the same thing that we're fighting against. So, uh, it's just, it, you know, it's sad. It's disappointing. I hear it a lot. And it's not something that's talked about. Let's see, they're gonna, I'm going to get messages. Oh, you sold it out. You're telling people what's going on inside the community. But it's the truth. People do say, oh, she ain't, she's not really black. Or, yeah. You know, he's not really fully black. They're not going to give us a real one. They're not going to give us a Malcolm X. But, so stuff like that. Like, oh, Malcolm was 100. He was 100. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It's it's to me it just sucks. We then cut to and again these are the cracks that are starting. Baines goes to see Elijah Muhammad because people think that Malcolm is getting too much press. Fucking Baines, golly, I can't stand it. Yeah. Well, and here's okay. So I, I I said this at the beginning, and and then in listening to you, I've started to rethink what I said because what I said at the beginning is there's this thing that was created for the movie, which is Baines, yeah. which I and I said that I half love it which i love the entire sequence in the prison and i think it was absolutely the right choice and i half don't like it because i don't my initial reaction is it it damages the sequence in the prison for me to have baines become this person really yeah but but in list but that's why i was listening to you guys i think it really obviously works for you oh yeah yeah because that's what happens yeah (laughs) the same people who help you once you ascend past them, become jealous. If they're not comfortable with who they are as a person, if they're not happy with what mm. they've established in their lives, they see you succeeding beyond them. And listen, not trying to be cocky or arrogant, I have experienced this over the last few years in a way that I do not understand and will never understand that because of what I was able to do when certain people opened the door, I moved past other people. And those people now 
denigrate me or say negative things about me. And I hear about it in the wind and I hear about it from other people who I trust. And it's hurtful and it's painful and it's sad. And it's sad. And those people don't communicate with me anymore. And you go like, what did I do? And they'll never tell you. With Malcolm, you're seeing it here. And I'm sure, Steve, Andre, maybe at some level, you guys have experienced this as well. Um, in my very small, small slice that I have, I've experienced this. So I understand. And I think that's what the Bain situation is so powerful because the same people who will help you are the same people who tear you down. And that's the ugly truth of it, unfortunately, because human beings are very petty. And Malcolm says it later to Betty, the greatest organization black men ever created and the n-words tore it apart and he's alluding to the fact that people's petty jealousies is what he means by using the term the n-word in that moment you know and so yeah it, it and i that's why i think the bane situation is so essential to the movie and it's supposed to break your heart because you yeah. really liked Bane's, man you sold me you sold me. I think I was wrong. It did, you know, I think, it, it did what, choice, you know, well, no, but it did what it was supposed to do, which is it just really upsets me. And I, yes. now I just have to accept that that's what it was supposed to do. Yeah. And it's upsetting. Uh, we have more press conferences. And then we get to this moment, John, that you mentioned before, which is Malcolm is walking up these steps and this very white, white girl comes to him Walk. and in the nicest little speech says hi I, i've read some of your speeches and i honestly believe that a lot of what you have to say is true and and i'm a good person in spite of what my ancestors did i, I just i wanted to ask you what can a white person like myself who isn't prejudiced what can i do to help you and, and further your cause and i just want to first point out that i i watching this was like yes like that was asking that was asking the question that i wanted to ask as the white person that that was it you know that was it and then he after the smallest of pauses in the flattest of voices says nothing and walks past yeah and he's walking into harvard he's walking yeah. into harvard to speak to an into a class of you know multiple races there multiple ethnicities but yet in that moment he rejects the help of this young white liberal and you see her just be crushed yeah and i also think it's to me and I don't know, I can ask you, Steve, if you feel this, you're right. Um, I am. <laughs> do you feel guilty, like, as if you did something? Like, do you carry any guilt? Because I don't think that you should, because right. you did not right. do anything. I do not feel personally guilty. I do feel personally responsible. So Why? what I mean by that, I don't feel like I'm responsible for slavery, but I do feel that I've benefited in lots of ways from certain situations. And I, you know, when it's making me sound like I'm, I'm, I don't, you mean the like I'm bragging or something, but like when people are suffering yeah. and they're suffering because of race, I feel a deep sense of, I should be doing something to help. I don't think it makes sense for people. I mean, even if you were the descendant of a slave owner, I don't think you personally are responsible for what happened. That doesn't right. make sense to me. But I do see deep, profound problems within our society and people that are really, really hurting and struggling. And I, yeah, I feel a sense of responsibility for that. Don't you think there's a responsibility for each of us to participate in society in a way to help end those struggles, regardless of color? Yes. Don't you think each of us benefit? I mean, I benefit from being black. I do. There, there are times that I benefit. you Black privilege? Are you trying to say there's black privilege? In some cases, there are 100%. There is. 
And I think even now, so yeah, there has become a little bit of an oversensitivity to where sometimes you know you take advantage of it. You're like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna get this is gonna help me out. Being black right now is gonna help me out for once. For what? But I, I just was wondering, like, when I heard that back, that that was written back then, and yeah. then you hear the conversations that happen now about white guilt. Mm-hmm. I think if you are actively perpetrating racist ideology and philosophies and actions in your everyday life, then you should feel guilty and you should feel bad. Right. But if you're a good person and you treat people equally, if you look at me, Steve, as a man and don't look at me with pity because I'm black or think I need something because I'm black, I think you are then helping bring in a, uh, the vision of equality to the world. And sometimes the pity, I think, is what to me, takes me off because I don't need anyone's pity. Right. Look at me as a man, not as a black man. It's like Malcolm's father said, I'm a man. <laughs> he did say that. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a, a bunch of thoughts. And, and the first one is I think that a lot of white guilt is very performative, yeah. in my opinion. I don't disagree with you there. I agree. And, and there's in the book, I think it's in White Fragility, there's a chapter which is uh, White Women's Tears. And it's really about that of just like someone making, and I don't mean to, it shouldn't, you shouldn't signal out women for this, but making it about me and how guilty I feel and taking the attention. uh, That's, that's a thing. There's also this book, Woke Racism, which is by an African-American New York Times writer and PhD whose name I forget, but it really goes into exactly what you've been talking about, Andre, is that these are complicated issues and just, and pity is definitely not that helpful. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the dealing with the, I don't know how to say it, there's a lot of shit that has to happen that's very complex and very individual. Right. But that doesn't mean that there aren't systemic problems. Like we have to face that there are systemic problems and we have to face that it's not just like every white person feel really guilty and that, that's not the solution yeah. to systemic problems. The thing is, the message gets warped and it gets twisted, right? Because I think at the purest base level, of what the uh, us becoming more aware of racism, you know, some people have perverted the term woke to represent is just saying, hey, this has been going on for decades in this for centuries in this country. Right. We want to change it. We want to make it better so that people feel like they are equal in this country. Like we say in the Constitution that we're equal in this country. So we need you to be aware of it. We need you to highlight. We need you to, to look at it, analyze it. And join us in changing it. No, now it's being twisted in. No, they're telling you you're you should feel terrible for being white. They're t- you know all this critical race theory nonsense that they're pushing is this idea that oh they're trying to teach you to hate yourself. They're not. They're trying to teach you to see there's a history of this, and there's a and we need to change it, and we need to come together to work towards changing it so that we can all feel like we're equal members of society and that there isn't this imbalance that there is towards people of color in a number of areas, not just the police or, or businesses in a number of areas. And that's what it's all about. And to see it getting perverted and twisted both on both sides, to be fair on both sides, because I don't think anybody should be out there saying all white people, there's like Malcolm does in this section of his, of the movie that all white people are devils or whatever, that, that kind of stuff doesn't help too. So it's just, you you got to look for the people who are telling the pure approach to this, who are trying to actually make change, not use it for their own purposes to line their pockets or to line their political futures. And that's where I think we get lost on this. And I think 
seeing getting perverted is just so frustrating for me overall. Like watching the view. Oh God, no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Great points, John. I, I, I think like a good rule for me, and this applies to listening to Malcolm X, anytime anyone says all of them, yeah, yeah. you should be very distrustful. Right. Even if you tend to agree and don't like the people that are the them, yeah. it, if you hear all, you should be distrustful. By the way, this it really did happen. Uh, a young white student did come to Malcolm asking him this. He did say nothing. It is in his autobiography. It is one of his great regrets of his life oh. of how he did this. And oh. so what Spike did was he actually shot a redemption. So later on in the film, oh. uh, older Michael Malcolm, he had a white woman come to him basically asking the same thing. And he gave her a different answer and said well you can help us in this way you can't do this but we would love you to do this and we really appreciate you and we need more people like you mm. and spike didn't put it in the movie because it didn't mm. fit which i agree i've, I've watched the deleted scene and i'm like yeah that's that's right correct that this yeah. is not in the movie yeah, yeah but he wanted to give him that moment of redemption but the way he addresses it in the press conference i think was a better a more effective way to address it. yeah and now as you said we're going to talk to this student these students at harvard i live like an animal i stole i used drugs I smoked reefers, cocaine, I committed adultery. Had it not been for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, I'd have surely been in an insane asylum or dead, or possibly even the murderer of one of you. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, the, these themes that he's talked about before, but the key one that he talks about is taking personal responsibility. Then he would want to get off the welfare. He would want to get a job. He would want to earn a living and take care of his family, and his family would respect him. His son will say, I'm proud that that's my father. His wife will say, I'm proud that that's my husband. Bruh. Father only means that you're taking care of your children. That's what it is to be a father. Father doesn't mean that you're having some babies. Anybody can have a baby. Andre, you have strong wow. reactions. Wow. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because <sighs> everything that he just said is contrary, typically, <laughs> to the liberal point of view on the black family and what blacks, how they, their dependency on government. And I am in alignment with what he's saying here. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important. And I think it gets glossed over and I think it gets swept under the rug. And I don't think that it should because I think it is so important and so understated in today's society. And I think it would help a lot more if we put a little bit of, if we were brave enough to shine a light on it and encourage it the way that we encourage everything else as an option and let it be an option. Like, if everything else is an option, why can't this be an option? Because statistically, in the history of the Black family, we see some shifts in not only economics, imprisonment, and 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 jobs. And I and for some reason, it's gotten lost. Mm. And, I, and this is where I believe that there is a continual perpetuation of government dependence that I don't think is healthy for, for the Black American. Or for any American, but typically it seems more prevalent statistically in Black Americans, also depending on where they live. But um, that right there, I think, needs to be part of the message. And for some reason, it is not. And for that reason is why I don't go, uh, I don't go all the way one, one way or the other. But that keeps me from going further to that side. I think that this is a Perfect example of why it's important to listen to people you disagree with, because I think basically every family values conservative who might hate Malcolm X for all sorts of reasons should agree with every single thing he just said. Mm. 
Hmm. It's the same. It absolutely. Yeah. And I, of course, agree with it. I do think that when there, there are things, again, this is why it's systemic, is there are things within the system that are really working against getting off government money. I mean, if you're only getting paid seven fifty an hour, you can't live on that. So you could be working full time and still have to take money from the government, you know? And so like the, the, the it has to be possible for you to get there or not even possible for the most exceptional person to get there, but possible for your average person to get there, you know, hundred yeah. percent. And that's why I think education needs to be important and affordable. Yes. And that's why I think though, that uh, it's gotta be possible, especially in cities where there are black leaders and they're run by black politicians Make it possible if there's no handcuff on you in your particular city, make it accessible. There, there, there are places where there are no restrictions. And for some reason, and I see, and this is, it's so fun. This is where the, the black man in me gets so frustrated because there is the possibility of making this happen in some of these uh, um, cities with black leaders where for some reason they're the most impoverished. And, and then for some reason, they're the most crime-ridden. And not all, not all. But I think that there should be more of an effort, especially in those areas, more sense of pride to take the government assist, not assistance away, but to make it a true help and not a crutch. And it's become this crutch and it's become this way to game the system to survive. And I and I think what you're saying, Steve, it has validity too, because it's so difficult to survive that People are just like, hey, what do, what do I have to do? Anything, I'll do whatever I have to do to survive. So the uh, and I, systemic indicates or or infers that it's white. The systemic racism infers that it's white, but it's not always white. And that that's to me where there's no black ownership and that where where we participate in the problem. We know that there are plenty of black people, uh, white people who have a problem <laughs> and who are racist. But what about the black people who need to help themselves? I need to figure out a way to get off of that. So um, I, I, I get very passionate about it because I watched my dad go through it. I watched my mom's dad go through it. I, I've seen my family be able to climb, claw, and grind through it. So I know it's possible, but you have to be willing to put in the work and the time just as Italian immigrants, just as Jewish immigrants, just as Cuban immigrants have had to put the time in too. Not saying it's the same. I'm saying it's possible. Agreed. Well, well, well said. Um, we we move into now the biggest of the speeches. This is the the most extras we had at any time in the film. It's like I read or heard that this is like ten thousand extras. It doesn't seem like quite that much, but this is the huge white tie speech at the temple. By the way, everyone's like all the women are wearing their you know headscarves and they're in their traditional Muslim outfits. Ruth Carter went to the black Muslim clothing factory to have them make all of these materials so these are actually made uh by black muslims to be the correct things and the speech he is making with baines and with elijah muhammad sitting behind him it's another big speech but this is where he gets into a new idea there's about to be a racial explosion <laughs> yes there's going to be a racial explosion and a racial explosion is more dangerous than an atomic explosion John, this is something you've been talking about for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And there's this moment where he says, The Honorable Elijah Muhammad's solution is the only solution for you and I. It's the only solution for the white man. Complete separation 
between the black race and the white race. So how incredible is it as you look at this scene, right? Here is Malcolm coming full circle to embrace his father's own ideology, which is the separation of the races. He's not saying go back to Africa necessarily, but he's essentially saying create a black or African-American or Negro community society that does not need to rely on the white man or the white society for anything. So essentially repeating the same things that his father was saying, separation of the race, going back to Africa to establish ourselves powerfully there. So how interesting, the circuitous route that the son took to say almost the same stuff that his father was saying um, as well in this moment. And yeah, I mean, the rebellion is there. The rebellion, he is speaking for a lot of frustrated people in the black community who think, who thought Mount Martin's way of doing things was too slow and too soft and not strong enough and didn't call people to task. We saw this with the apartheid situation, right? A lot of people wanted to bring these people in front of tribunals and execute them. They wanted so many white people to die in South Africa for the horrible treatment that they had done to black people for centuries or for decades or however long apartheid was in in motion in South Africa. And it was uh, Mandela and it was Tutu who said, no, we're going to have them speak their truths, but we're not going to you know, crucify them or execute them or whatever, but we're going to have them tell the truth in a public way, which, at t- which honestly, that can be even more effective than any kind of execution or any kind of prison term. Having these people admit what they did in a, in front of a whole bunch of people can be quite debilitating. As, as I mentioned earlier, my experience being yeah. in front of a bunch of fraternity guys having to explain my point of view can be quite debilitating. Even if you think you were right. It can be quite debilitating. So to see, I think that what you're seeing here is this rebellion against that um, and trying to figure out what is the what is the compromise. Want to hear something crazy? Yeah. So, you know, Malcolm said to this white girl when she asked what she could do to help, he said nothing. But the fact is there were a couple of white organizations that were giving money to the Nation of Islam <laughs> and that Elijah Muhammad knew that they were giving money and accepted those money. And those organizations were white supremacist organizations. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Because wow. Wow. they like the idea of complete separation between the black races and the white races. They like this makes a lot of sense. Right. Right. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> wow. Um, uh, he gets a, a standing ovation. Baines's performance is great because you can <laughs> see how unhappy he is with this whole thing. And then in a big crowd, we're coming down the stairs and one of the a Muslim comes up to him and the scene is so odd and says, Can I ask you something? Yes, anything. Are you Elijah's pimp? And I remember seeing this the first time and I was like, I don't even know what the, what's happening in this moment. <laughs> and, and everyone gets kind of mad and Malcolm's like, hold on, you know, it's okay. What are you saying? And he says, If you don't know, man, I feel the sorriest for you. And Malcolm says, let me tell you. And he interrupts and says, no, let me tell. And like reaches for him. And he is instantly, instantly grabbed, picked up and carried out of there. And screaming. Yeah. He had been in a little bit of a position of power in that moment. But as soon as he gets yanked away, you hear him screaming as he walks away. And this is, and Malcolm's a little shook. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Use a term. And he's just, uh, 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 he's, the brother's just thirsty for knowledge, you know. But he's screaming what? He's screaming is a warning? He's warning him, isn't he? Yeah. I, don't know, wait, I feel like he's warning him, like, yeah. don't trust him. Yeah. 
It's a, it's an unsettling scene. Mm. And then we go to Malcolm and Betty, and this is the longest scene between them. Yeah. It's not exactly what he describes in the book, but he does say that this is really their only fight of their entire relationship. Wow. What are you looking at? You. Why are you looking at me like that? Because you're in trouble. And he doesn't want to talk about it. And man, again, you know, we said how strong uh, Betty Shabazz is. She asks, have we ever had a fight? Never. Argument? Never. And then she says, You're going to have one. Right now, if you don't talk about it. Talk about what, Betty? The talk's everywhere. There's talk everywhere. There's always talk. There's always going to be talk. Aren't they talking now about me trying to take over the nation? Isn't that the talk? And what's interesting is it's because, and this is hard writing, it is really a fight about three things. One, it's a fight about we find out because we see a newspaper article that there is a rumor that Elijah Muhammad has slept with two of his secretaries and fathered children with them. Mm. And Malcolm's response to that is Don't you realize whose newspaper this is? This is the devil's newspaper. He's trying to divide us. And it's very clear that she believes it's true. And there's this moment he grabs the paper and he throws it. And him losing his temper now, you can see he is ashamed. Mm-hmm. And then he brings up Baines. Baines, is he your friend? What is the matter with you? Nothing. Now tell me, what's the matter with you? Wake up. Hmm. How long has she been building up to this <laughs> confrontation? I mean, <clears throat> how many female listeners do we have? I'm sure they have had this experience with their significant other uh, where they kind of, you know, sit back a little bit and let it play out. And then eventually there's the moment where, okay, we got to deal with this and you're going to come to terms with it. And you're going to look at this. I think she's been seeing it happen for a little bit of while. And that's a great way for spike to accelerate the timetable of what's happening. Cause Mm -hmm. it's been a while for all this to happen. So it's great to see. Uh, it's great usage by Spike to have this fight with him and Betty. With him and Betty at this time, like her. How can I say? Is her laying the groundwork for even more questions about Baines in this moment? The fact that his name, Malcolm's name, hasn't appeared in the in the paper that Baines edits that Malcolm created for over a year, and yep. he's he's the national uh, what min- pro- minister, minister? Yeah, yeah. So it's like what Baines is the one who saved my life. When I was in prison, crawling around like an animal, he's the one that brought me to the Honorable yes. Elijah Muhammad. And the Honorable time, Elijah Lord. Muhammad brought me back A from the... Long time no, no, you you Don't you raise your voice in my house! Steve, can I ask you, do you know when did they shoot this in the sequence, uh, calendar-wise? How early or late? I don't, I don't know. I mean, they had to do some things in sequence because of the beard and because of Denzel's hair. But uh, So I would assume it's somewhere in the middle. But I don't know. It just feels like she saved up all of her gusto, all, all, all of it. Everything she'd been holding on to and suppressing was let out here. So if she did this in the middle of the process, she's even greater than we are giving her credit for. Because it's one thing if you are building, 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 and you're waiting to shoot this. Okay, you know, we're going to shoot this at the end. I do that sometimes. Hey, you know what? Yeah. Uh, John, we're going to shoot this scene at the end because this is like your big payoff. You can build towards it. Right. But if they shot this in the middle or early... And then she backtracked, built up to it. That's like, that's some sort of genius, by the way, to be able to yeah. do that. Well, and we start to hear that they're getting kind of rich. They're living kind of nice. Right. The everyone else is. And Malcolm is, and his family, they they have nothing. Yeah. And the moment, by the way, when she says, we don't even have life insurance. If anything happens to you. The nation of Islam will provide for you and the children if anything happens to me. Are you sure? 
And again, he st- he tries to get away, and she does not back down. Just tell me, what do you want me to do? You can face death 24 hours a day, but the possibility of betrayal never enters your head. It's so fascinating how this movie turns. Mm. It's not like a quick U-turn. It's like you're in a big semi, and you're doing a real slow turn until suddenly you realize you're pointing in a completely different direction. You know what I mean? And I think that she is, you can't doubt her. I think her honesty and the truth is just too powerful. And then Malcolm goes to visit two women with children and they each tell their story about, and what's I think so good about them is they're both so nice and they're not angry and they don't blame Elijah Muhammad. They're just saying their truth. And I don't think anyone could deny it. Yeah, very true. All I want is support for my three children. That the Honorable Elijah Muhammad provide for them. And his response is, Allah will provide. And he goes to talk to Baines. Perhaps some of the brothers are a little jealous. Maybe they think you've been getting too much press, that's all. Which is actually, he's jealous. Yeah. Exactly. To me, this scene is the, is, is the biggest betrayal. And then he says, I, I love, this is a fantastic rationalization. Now about our coming up in the world a little. The nation's grown. We've grown with it. You know our people. They want their leaders to be prosperous. One hand washes the other. By the way, this is not just religious. This is not just black Muslims, right? Any organization, especially oh, yeah. evangelical organizations, believe this <laughs> nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, have you been, have you visited the Vatican? Yeah. Oh yeah, fair. All right, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, there is more gold and statues and yeah. art and they have a whole city. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like and the idea the I love the rational it's like such a beautiful rationalization of I don't really want to live a nicer, more luxurious life, but my people expect that of me. Yeah. They want to live through me, vicariously through me. So I have to have this nice car. That is a, that is an amazingly ridiculous statement. <laughs> and when Bain says one hand washes the other, what does Malcolm respond? I'm telling you God's words and not no hustle. Full circle. And then and what's so amazing, and this is why it hurts so much, is Baines doesn't process it. Mm-hmm. He can't because and I guess the, and this is actually an important point is as you become corrupted, your only way of of rationalizing it is that all people are corrupt. Yeah. So that Malcolm must be coming to him for money. That's why he's coming here. He says, what do you want? A new car, a new house? It's the money, isn't it? And Denzel's choice at this moment, he makes a gesture like he's stabbing himself in the chest. Yeah. Which is what this is. Mm-hmm. And now we move just seamlessly from the money thing into... Elijah Muhammad is a human being. And so are you. And then, again, it's like a scene of rationalization after rationalization, because the next rationalization is all the biblical references to people that had affairs and had many wives and many, many children. David slept with Bathsheba, but he is remembered to slay him Goliath. Noah was accused of drunkenness, but God gave him the ark. Solomon had 700 wives, but he was the greatest, wisest king in history. Brother Baines is a two-bit hustler. But one hand washes the other. And Baines is using the great man thing. Well, he's a great man. Our rules don't apply to him. Where have we hear, where have we been hearing this recently? Again, these are the these are the warning signs. When people say all of them, that's a warning sign. When people say normal rules don't apply to me, that's yeah. a that's a warning sign. Baines, I'm not going to be careful, Malcolm. I warn you. And Malcolm walks out. 
And now with Elijah Muhammad, he frames it as him as a biblical Mm. kind of person who has to plant his seed, that that's part of prophecy, that he's the last prophet and there won't be another. And therefore he has to do this thing. You know, it's like, if you tell a dude, you're divine, you've saved all of us. Well, that dude's going to start to believe it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. This sequence, I call it now in retrospect, I call it the cult sequence because now it starts to become this idea that it's a cult because you've got a leader who believes that they are the only one who's going to be able to save them. And after him, there'll be no one else. That's crazy. And then the second equation, well, I'm going to keep having sex with young women who I've um, groomed and seduced and manipulated into having sex with me. And I'm going to rationalize it by saying my seed must continue so that the these so the black people, the black Muslims can have someone here to lead them who has my blood in it. It's 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 utter madness and cult. And do you think he believes that? Like yes. that do, you, do I think I Elijah like believed like, that? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Like do you like the 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 confrontation of the sexual well, yeah. promiscuity? Did you think that he was make, saying that as an excuse? No. Or do you I, think no? I think like Steve said, these people are in power for so long; they leave for so long that it is almost natural for a human being to start believing the supremacy of themselves. And if everyone else is telling you how great you are, then you're, I mean, look, the Dalai Lama, I'm sure has a couple of moments when he's by himself. He's like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty cool. shit." You know I mean? There's other moments, you know? And so anybody who gets their butt kissed that much, it's natural. It's human nature to start to believe that, that madness. And that leads to the hubris and the hubris is what leads to the mistakes. And, Every cult leader, religious leader, everybody who's who's had that kind of experience eventually is found out when their hubris or their arrogance uh, crosses the lines of uh, morality, you know, and they will try to rationalize it anyway. I mean, Baines is you could argue and we've seen this recently in our political discourse. People will twist and turn anything to try to make you believe why a person acted terribly in a certain moment right. or why they're yeah. doing the terrible things that they're doing. Baines gives what I would say now was a pretty good PR spin in our political cycle nowadays to defend Elijah, and people will embrace that and hold on to it because if they don't, then they have to come to terms with the fact that they followed someone for years who was a liar. And so they wasted all those years, and most people cannot yeah. confront the idea that they might have wasted years so they'll rationalize anything to keep this person in that position so they can validate themselves through that person. It's crazy. Well, I, I think that Baines believes it. And I think Spike oh. wants us to believe that Baines believes it. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. The way that he shoots Baines, Baines does not flinch. He does not move. He sits mm. very still and he delivers his line directly center frame and, and does not flinch. Yeah. Elijah Muhammad is shifting when he says, oh, yeah. you know, I have to speak. Point. Uh, so blocking-wise, uh, he he hits his desk a little bit. He picks something up. There's a lot of nervous energy mm. in the way that it's shot. I don't know about and how it really happened, but I felt as though Spike wanted us to believe, from a director's point of view, that he he's justifying his own behavior and using the religion as an excuse. But I, I mean, I don't really know. I, it's just something I picked up on. Anyone who has, throughout this whole film, everyone who's been still has delivered something truthful and powerful. And anyone who has shifted and has been off center has had some sort of 
character issue in that particular moment. Two, two quick things. One is I think humans' abilities to convince themselves on, of some bullshit is profound. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Like you uh, said, John, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that my feeling about Elijah Muhammad is that he is 97% convinced himself that this is true. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that 3% deep down knows you're fucking full of shit. Yeah. It knows. And one other thing that I just want to say is like, okay, now you found out that the thing you believed in was corrupt. That doesn't necessarily mean you should throw out everything you learned from that thing. Right. That doesn't mean that the th shit that he learned from Baines wasn't great shit. It was. It saved his life. My faith had been shattered in a way I can never fully describe. Every second of my 12 years with Mr. Muhammad, I had been ready to lay down my life for him. The thing to me that is worse than death itself is betrayal. <sighs> And that's what his wife has been saying. Everything but betrayal, you'll see. Yeah. And you're willing to face death, but not face betrayal. And to his own, um, his own words, he had said that Allah will provide. So his faith truly should have been in Allah and not as much in the human beings that will fail you. And the next scene, you see him, he's actually going to try to sell this thing. And I love the anger as he says, I'm going to try to sell the Solomon, whatever bullshit. And then she walks away and then he bangs, slams down on the table. You see the anger come out. The next moment is we see the assassination of John F. Kennedy. You want to know where he got this footage? Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone's making JFK at the same time. And what's funny is they're both working for Paramount and all, and he goes to Oliver Stone and says, hey, Paramount says your movie's going to be two hours. So that's true. He's like, yeah, that's what I told him. It's totally going to be three hours. <laughs> and Spike was like, me too. <laughs> um, and then what we see is people come to Malcolm X to hear his reactions to the death of John F. Kennedy. And he talks about that this is justice, that this is the evil that America has sowed coming back to one of its gardeners, and then there's the famous speech about the chickens coming home to roost. That the chickens that he sent out, the violence that he's perpetrated in other countries here and abroad, be it four children in Birmingham or Medgar Evers or Lamumbrove in Africa, I think this same violence has come back to claim one of their own. Now, being an old farm boy myself, chickens coming home to roost never made me sad. In <laughs> fact, it's only made me glad. I think it's the, it's not the chickens coming home to roost. It's the words, it's only, it's always made me glad. Mm. That's what does it. That was a bad statement you made. You knew from my instructions no minister was to make any statements against this man. The country loved this man. And this is true, by the way. Elijah Muhammad had told Malcolm X not to make a public statement, and Malcolm X made one anyway. We must dissociate ourselves from your terrible blunder. I must... Silence you. For 90 days, you must not make any statements to the press, nor are you to speak at any temples. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I submit 100%. I remember this being my first experience with Malcolm X growing up was um, the JFK stuff, because I was such a massive Kennedy fan growing up. Sure. So hearing him through that prism was how I experienced uh, Malcolm until I saw the movie. And then I was made aware of the context of all this and what was going on. So 
Yeah, what a uh, powerful thing to bring up. And this is what begins the fracture between Malcolm and uh, Black Muslims and what allowed them to paint Malcolm in a certain way and excommunicate him. And unfortunately, it was from Malcolm's own mouth. And once again, the hubris of Malcolm not looking at the situation here. As we said, any political leader, he's the national minister. He was feeling himself a little too much. And he said (laughs) something that although, you know, you could argue it's accuracy, and defend it in the end uh, because he's making an overall point about america not kennedy about white america about how they've you know started wars in other countries and and what have you and thinking they could never pay the price for it that's what malcolm is essentially trying to say but by basing it only as kennedy and then saying he smiled about the chickens coming that's what lost him the public and for for and and it's it's been something that still people bring up when they talk and me too I, I if i had heard that particularly at the time i would have been like fuck that guy oh sure you know? of course i mean it's like we could we could make an argument that that foreign policy decisions made by the united states might have been parts of the motivations for the people who attacked us on september 11th yes but if you said after september 11th this is the chickens coming home to roost and i'm glad well fuck you you know or like, like fucking the, the, saying i have a lot of respect for the terrorists fuck off you idiot that's bro. not what he said that's not what he said yeah he's, he said he said, he said, they said, well, they're cowards. And he said, you can't say they're cowards. You can say they're horrible people. You can't say they're cowards, which I agree Who with. Who said this? Bill Maher. Oh, Bill Maher. Oh. Yeah. But that, it's going to derail us into a whole other Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. We could do a cinephile short another time. <laughs> so, but at this moment, as you said, the, the confluence, the moment of coming together of Elijah Muhammad's infidelity, Baines is trying to bribe him off, and now him getting silenced by the nation of islam is going to lead to the next great transformation in the life of malcolm x and at this moment i think it's time to end what has been just an absolutely fantastic conversation i guess we are going into four parts but uh andre this has been fantastic thank you so much for joining us on this long journey i love it i love it i love the conversation it it really is great that we're talking about these things and i hope that uh by our perspectives being shared that other people may delve into to discovering more about malcolm x because there are so many great incredible things john after i heard you talk about him i delved even more and i was like dang john's right and that's the power of media yeah agreed man thank you um so that's what we think of malcolm x so far we'd love to hear your thoughts on our facebook page on twitter on instagram please subscribe to the show if you haven't already on on apple podcasts on youtube please leave your reviews on apple podcasts you can rate the show on spotify you can support us at patreon.com slash the cinephiles and buy or stream malcolm x along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net uh and you could find me at sr morris and sr morris one and listen to star trek stuff on enterprise incidents john how would they find you you can always find me at the roca says on twitter instagram and tiktok and, and uh, head on over to my youtube channel youtube.com slash uh, John Roca says, and also uh, my other podcast, The Top Ten and The Geek Buddy. The Geek Thank Buddy. you. <laughs> um, Andre, how do people find you? At Andre Gordon Official on Instagram, at Andre Gordon Official on Facebook, at Andre Gordon Official on TikTok, and on YouTube at Four Horsemen Studios. Right now we have a uh, a new Star Wars Grey Trials series episode one is out so check it out and i think that's it for this week we will be back next time to i promise conclude our exploration of malcolm x in our season of lee next week on the cinephiles 